Thank you for coming, Baruch Hashem, lots of new people. Welcome, feel comfortable, and Bezat Hashem, we'll, uh, we'll uh, learn some Torah, have some food, snacks, drinks, make sure you have blessing, and Bezat Hashem, we'll get some Musar and uh, learn how to become human beings. What do you think? So, we have, this is, uh, I think, number nine, Perkei Avot Musar number nine. And uh, Baruch Hashem, we're getting a lot of really good feedback on the series. Uh, a lot of people are saying, you know, aside from obviously Parashat Shavuot was very interesting and um, relevant. But uh, again, we've gone through it a couple of times already. And uh, it's time to see how we can apply all this beautiful Torah to our life. And even though the Parashat Shavuot, you could obviously learn from it uh, endlessly. Uh, Musar is more direct. When you learn Musar... It's more direct application to your actual life in every way, whether it's business, uh, like we learned a lot about last week, or it's shiduchim, or it's uh, really anything. It's uh, like my father used to always tell us, Kodem kol adam. First of all, be a human being. Then you can do whatever you want. Be rich, be poor, be this, be that. Well, first of all, be a human being. And in essence, that's one of the things that we're forgetting in Torah Nation. It's not just the secular world that has problems, really, you know, behaving like human beings. Sometimes it's the religious people. And uh, I got a um, a text from one of my other students, who's uh, very funny. But uh, he he texts me. He says, "Kodarav, uh, you're a prophet." And I said, <laughs> "What did I do?" He says, "I went to the mikveh this morning, and exactly what you said happens happens." Some guy was doing push-ups naked in the, in the mikveh. <laughs> and this is what we talked about last week. You have to understand that to go do a mitzvah of going to the mikveh, but then walk around immodestly, walk around naked, thinking, oh, I'm just among guys, like you're in a football locker room. You're making a much bigger sin. A much bigger sin by doing that, walking around naked, not covering yourself, thinking that it's okay because just among guys, than the mitzvah that you're making by going to the mikveh. And as a matter of fact, my Rav, who's amazing, says he hasn't gone to a certain mikveh for five years already because of how people behave there. And he lives in Yerushalayim. It's not like he lives in a, uh, you know, full of Arabs or something. He lives in Yerushalayim. Unfortunately, it's a, sometimes even the religious world forgets how to behave. And the reason for that is because, just like the uh, Ramchal says, people like to delve into the Torah into things that are mentally stimulating, into the Gemara, into the Mishnah, into different things of different parts of the Parashot, Midrashim, 
but very few actually have the guts to look into Musar. And I say guts because in order to learn Musar, you actually have to have guts. Why? Because Musar requires you to change. Halakha, okay, so listen, today you didn't know this halakha, till now you know it. Fine, chazakavaruch. Okay, so next year you'll have a better etrog. Next year you'll keep one more mitzvah in Shabbat. Next year you're going to do something better on Sukkot. Great, chazakavaruch. What do you think, Hashem is clapping for you? What is He clapping for? He's clapping for when you stop being angry. Not because you're listening to some self-help book that's telling you contain all this anger inside and build cancer. That's not, that's not, that's not a working on your meter. That just means that you just kept your anger and you're not expressing it to the world. Not being angry means that you finally realize that there's no reason in the world to ever be angry. To such an extent that the Gemara actually says anyone that's angry, and let's say he takes this uh, remote control or anything, he throws it, it's 100% just like he worshipped an idol. That throwing of this remote or a pen or any expression of that anger is 100% idol worship. So for the Gemara, which is from Hashem, it's not for me, it's from Hashem. Mount Sinai, we got oral Torah also. So for Hashem to tell us here, you throwing a remote because you got mad because your team lost. You got mad because your stock went down. You got mad because, I don't know, something happened. And you threw something across the room. You acted like an animal for about three seconds. Hoping it's only three seconds, not the whole day. Hashem says it's idol worship. How could this be? Okay, Hashem, listen, I understand. We got to do mitzvot. We got to look a certain way. We got to act a certain way. We got to be nice. Ta, ta, ta. But come on, no, I got, once in a while I can't get angry. Once in a while I can't say, hey, give the guy the, uh, the bird because he cut me off. I can't get angry at Hashem? No, it's 100% idol worship. That extent. Why? Because he says, if you're angry, that means that you think that everything is supposed to go your way. And the reason why you're angry is because it didn't go your way. You thought that the stock was supposed to go up when you bought it, and it didn't. You thought that the employee was supposed to be on time and he didn't come on time you thought that your wife was supposed to talk to you a certain way and she didn't you thought that the baby is not supposed to fall at one and a half years old and he did you thought you shouldn't get a flat tire and you did life happened life happened Hashem runs the world with or without you and you got mad about it which means that you think that you're a mini Hashem. Because if you think that the world is supposed to run in accordance to your tune, you're in essence saying that you're a mini Hashem. And you've made yourself into an idol. Therefore, if you actually put this into perspective, and actually, and this is hard work, this is not like you listen to this shiur and tomorrow you're never going to be angry again. This is you have to listen to this shiur and many, many other like it for seven years straight. And then Bezot Hashem, you're not going to have anger. Rabbi Yisrael from Salant, the one that started the Musar movement, said that it's much more difficult to, for him to repair, fix one midah than it is for him to finish the entire shas. And finishing the entire shas takes seven years if you do daf yomi. So I'll finish my point. So the key here is that when you realize 
that there's never a real reason to be angry. You won't listen to these self-help books that tell you this and just contain it, don't express it to the world, get over it, meditate, and one of these other crazy things that they tell you to do. All they tell you to do is just keep it inside. Don't tell people you're angry. Smile. Kill them with a smile. No, Hashem is telling you, no, no, no. You don't actually have a reason to be angry, my son. Ever. Because once you realize I'm the one running the world, you know that everything that happens, I did it. What, are you mad at me for running my world? Who are you to tell me what to do? You mad at me for giving you a flat tire? You mad at me for making your kid fall? Maybe I made your kid fall because you deserve the kaparat avonot, but I didn't really want to give you what you really deserve, which chas meant something much, much worse. I said, okay, let him suffer a little bit over three years. Instead of chas v'shalom, the kid breaking the leg, he got a little scratch six times over three years. It's much better than the kid breaking his leg. You got a flat tire. Why? Because I saved you. Because there's an accident that I had to make down the road and I wanted to save your life. So I made you have a flat tire and I saved your life. So you're going to tell me how to run the world. So when you get mad, you're in essence getting mad at Hashem. And you're trying to tell him how to run the world. In essence, you made yourself into an idol. So this is the reason why once we realize that, we're never going to get mad. Well, what's the question? Can we ask questions? Yeah, I believe in the Gemara states that Hashem does get angry. Hashem gets angry and it says in the Gemara... He gets angry. How long does he get angry? Shniya. Rega. For a rega. In Masechet Brachot, in Masechet Beitzah, and a few other places. It's, it's like a second. It's rega rega is different rega. than a second. Rega is an actual... Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The time that you say rega, that's how long Hashem gets angry. Right. That's what I learned. Right. Now, it also says that Hashem gets angry every day. Right. Every day, rega. It also... We are also supposed to emulate the Midot of Hashem. Right. Tomodvora, right? Palm parts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's the question? So the question is, are we allowed to get angry? No. Once every day? No. Rega? No. Why not? All of the midot that there are according to the Rambam and according to the um, uh, Ramchal and all of the Sifrer Musar that you have, the Rambam explains it in eight, uh, Shmone Prakim that all of the midot have extremes. Everything has an extreme. Every desire has an extreme. There's extreme, you know, desire for money, someone that loves money, and there's someone that hates money. Neither one of them are healthy. So what's healthy? Middle ground. There's someone that loves women and someone that hates women. Neither one of them are healthy. Middle ground. Everything is good with middle ground except one midah. What's the midah? Anger. Anger, you have to be to the extreme of never being angry, which is very difficult nonetheless. I'm not telling you guys to become Moshe Rabbeinu tomorrow, but you have to know where to get to. You have to know where to aim to. Why is anger something you have to be extreme from? Because nothing good can come out of it. So what does it mean when the Gemara says in a couple of different places that Bilam, the way he knew, the way he knew how to give his prophecy, to give his curses, and so on, is because he knew the moment that Hashem was angry. Which you could also figure out by looking at the rooster. The rooster's, uh, uh, I don't know what this part is called, on top of our head. It has a strip of white at a certain moment during the day. It's called rega in, in, in English, in uh, Hebrew. 
Rega is not really a second, because a second is, a second is actually a factor of time, whereas a rega is one fifteen, uh, fifteen thousandth of a second. Nonetheless, point is, is that the, um, the Gemara says that Hashem uses this rega, uses this moment, to get angry. But it doesn't actually mean that Hashem gets angry. But what it actually means, what Chazal explains is because it can't be that Hashem gets angry. Why? Because if Hashem gets angry, that means that Hashem has emotions. If Hashem has emotions, that means that the emotions are, are stronger than Him. That means that the emotions are God. So Hashem doesn't have emotions, just like He doesn't have a strong hand. You know, He says Hashem took us out of Egypt with a strong hand. He doesn't have a strong hand. Just like He said to Moshe Rabbeinu, you could see uh, my back, but you can't see my face, because anyone that sees my face dies. He doesn't have a face, he doesn't have a back. One of the th- you know, 13 principles of faith is that Hashem has no image and no likeness of an image. So what does it mean when he says Hashem gets angry for a second? Or for a It means that Hashem uses and utilizes that moment to deliver all of the punishments on whoever deserves punishment for that day. That's the time he uses to deliver all the punishments. Because obviously... There has to be a moment during the day that Hashem punishes us. Now, if it was throughout the entire day, we wouldn't survive. If He used the entire day to punish us for every single thing that we did, we wouldn't survive a minute. This is actually the reason why until this day, Am Yisrael is suffering from the golden calf. We're still suffering today. 3,300 years later, about the golden calf that happened 3,000 years ago, people you don't even know. Didn't Hashem forgive us? He gave us the Rachamim, the, the principles. If he gave us by not destroying us. He forgave us. He said, okay, I'll forgive you, Moshe Rabbeinu. pleaded, yes, uh, you know, don't destroy us, don't destroy us. Okay, fine, I'll forgive you. This is the way how, how you know, if, if that's going to happen the next time. Hashem, Hashem, El Rachum, Bechanum, Erechafayim, Rav Chesed, Rotzel Chesed, Laravim. That's when Hashem taught us that. Hashem, I, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it's wrong. So the, the, the correction is is that yes, he did forgive us by not destroying us because Moshe Rabenu told him, listen, if you're going to destroy them, Hashem told him, I'm going to start a new nation with you. And Moshe Rabenu says, I don't want you to start a new nation with me. As a matter of fact, wipe me out first. Erase me from your book first. Uh, and Hashem, so Hashem obviously said, okay, so I, I forgive them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he forgave them as far as forever. What he forgave is by, by distributing the punishment over the length of this, uh, of this world's existence instead of delivering it in one moment or even one year. Because if he delivered the punishment in a shorter period of time, it would be too much for us to absorb, we would all die. So Hashem has not forgiven us, has only, has only said, okay. He's distributed, he's distributed the punishment over a long period of time. We're still suffering, according to the Gemara, we're still suffering for the golden calf until, this, uh, until today, uh, until the Mashiach comes. Every single suffering that Am Yisrael has, including the fires that are happening in Israel, including the Holocaust, including the pogroms, including everything, part of it, not the only reason, but part of the reason of why it's happening is the Kaparat Avonot for the Golden Calf. So now, the Shlomo Amelech tells us... Sorry. Yeah. It's very, so, it's so very interesting, but you know, I have a couple questions. That, did Hashem not get angry... Um, uh, at Moshe for other uh, issues and uh, Avram Avinu. My question Again, is, the expression of anger is for us to understand. Hashem never get angry? Hashem doesn't have anger. He doesn't have emotions. He doesn't have happiness. He doesn't have anger. He doesn't have uh, 
the same type of emotions like you and I understand it, but what the, uh, the Torah does is gives Hashem, uh, uses words that give us the ability to understand it. So for example, when it says that Hashem took us out of Egypt with a strong hand, then obviously it's showing that Hashem made His glory known by the plagues, the miracles, and so on. When Hashem showed anger, it's because we understand what anger is, Hashem punishment. example, when Moshe was supposed to talk to the rock, to the rock right. and then instead he hit the rock. Right. So Hashem says, hey, well, you're not doing what I said. Oh, anybody that's in there, if you could move yeah, it. Yeah, but she just got home. Oh, yeah, it's put in the uh, guest, guest. Sorry. There's no. Yeah, you want to do it? So go ahead. It's this, this, you know, this so example. When, when Moshe Rabbeinu, he, he didn't talk, he didn't say, he didn't do as Hashem told him to do. Right. But instead, he hit the rock. Right. So now Hashem says, you know. Hashem didn't say I got angry. Okay, that's the question. No, he said didn't say I got angry. You, you're not allowed to go into Eretz No, what he said is that he missed the opportunity to sanctify his name. Meaning, which will actually is one of the things we're going to learn to, in today's, uh, in today's uh, Mishnah. Um, Hashem gave an opportunity for Moshe Rabbeinu to fulfill the biggest mitzvah in Judaism, the biggest mitzvah and the biggest purpose of the world, and he gives us the same opportunity every single day. The biggest mitzvah in Judaism and in the world is to sanctify Hashem's name. It's in essence the purpose of this world. So when Moshe Rabbeinu was told the first time to bring the water, he actually was told to hit the, uh, the, the rock, and he did. The second time Hashem told him, bring your stick, bring the shaft that you have, but don't hit the rock. Talk to it. Mm-hmm. Now, Moshe was ready to do what Hashem told him. He brought the stick. And he was ready to talk to the, uh, to the rock. The problem is that Am Yisrael was very impatient. Didn't want to listen to him. Didn't want him to fulfill this mitzvah that Hashem told him to do. And they started complaining. And after they started complaining, they started making fun of him. Ah, look, you can't find the rock. Ah, you, the rock that you're talking to is not answering you. Maybe this is a scam. Maybe you don't know what you're doing. So Moshe, he didn't get angry because of himself. He was the humblest man that ever lived. He got angry because he says, listen, after all the miracles that Hashem has performed for you for all these years, for all this time, He's still questioning his ability to whether he can give you water or not out of this rock that I'm talking to. And he hit the rock out of as a result of that. Now, and he expressed his anger by hitting the rock, but obviously that led to the rock bringing water, and a lot of it. Now Hashem said, listen, you brought water, the overall Execution happened. Why? Because the execution is in Hashem's hands. It's not in Moshe's hands. Moshe didn't actually bring the water. Hashem did. Moshe didn't create the rock. Hashem did. So, Hashem made the water come. He said, the end result was in my hands anyway. Your position, your job, was to talk to it. So the people can see, hey, look, he's talking to the rock. Not like last time when he hit it. Last time he hit the rock and water came out. 
if he would have hit it again, then we say, oh, maybe he just has like this trick that he used 40 years ago. Maybe he has this trick. He hits rocks and water comes out. Such a trick. Maybe it's not Hashem. Something else. But if you talk to it, they say, oh, this is different. Last time he hit it, it was cool. This time he talked to it. It's even, look, Moshe is even bigger. Kedushai is even bigger. Hashem's miracles are getting bigger. Last time we needed to hit the rock, this time he just talked to it. Look how amazing Hashem is. So the fact that you didn't talk to the rock and you hit it made it look like it was some trick. It gave them an opportunity to become kufrim, to become heretics and say, oh, this is just like last time, maybe it's a trick, maybe it's not Hashem, maybe this, which means you missed the opportunity to sanctify my name, which is exactly what Hashem says. Because you missed the opportunity to sanctify my name, you and Aaron cannot come to Israel. So it doesn't say that Hashem got angry, but nonetheless, that's the end outcome, is that Moshe Rabbeinu did not fulfill this mitzvah. Now the real reason, as we've said in other shurim, of why Hashem did not let Moshe Rabbeinu come to Israel is not really because of the rock. The rock was an excuse. The rock was a way to make it look natural. Like Hashem does a lot of things to make things look natural. Like for example, right now a lot of people are into politics, even though I think it's a complete waste of time. But people are very, very happy that Trump won and Hitler, uh, Clinton didn't win, and it's all great. And they think that all of a sudden Mashiach is going to come because she's not there. Okay, great. Whether he's going to be good for Am Yisrael or not is irrelevant. It's all in Hashem's hands. As we talked about last week's Shiur, once somebody becomes a leader, their free choice is no longer theirs. Hashem takes it away from them. We have several proofs in the Torah. One of them is Paro, another one is Nebuchadnezzar, another one is uh, Sichon, and several others. Several other major leaders throughout history, where as soon as they become leaders, it specifically says in the Torah, Hashem took away, removed their free choice. They no longer have free choice. They officially become a tool for Hashem to either punish Am Yisrael or to reward them. So even though Trump could have meant everything he said about liking Am Yisrael before he became president, great, wonderful, could be a great human being. Once he becomes president, it's all in Hashem's hands. Now, why did Hashem, how could you explain Hashem picking him instead of Hitler? Because if Hashem wants to give us good, are you catching on to the Hitler? Uh, if Hashem wants to give us good, because we're doing tshuva, we're coming to Shuret Torah, we're learning Musar, we're keeping Shabbat, we don't waste seed, we don't waste time, he wants to give us good. Giving us good through Trump looks natural. It looks not. It looks like Trump did it. Because Hashem wants to run the world in a natural way. But if Hitler, all of a sudden becomes tzaddikah, says, oh no, no, I want you to open kolals all over Brooklyn, all over Boca Raton, all over... Come on. Okay, what's wrong with you? You have a shed inside you? You have a demon inside you? What's wrong with you? It doesn't look natural. Why? Because she's anti-Semitic. And her second-in-command is a terrorist. It doesn't look natural. Hashem says, okay, let me make it look natural so it still gives you guys the free choice to choose whether to believe in me or not. Whether you think it's really me doing it, Hashem, or it's Trump. If you believe in Trump, you get one of the curses in Torah called Ahu. Ahu is the worst curse in the Torah. Ahu is given to a person that trusts in man and not Hashem. 
So it's better that everybody stops following the politics if they can't control their emotions and stop thinking that it's all in the hands of Obama, Osama, and uh, and, and everyone else that's coming on, uh, on uh, you know into the White House. Go ahead. So a question uh, regarding anger, mm-hmm. Pinhas. Being? Pinhas. Pinhas. Yeah, when uh, when killed Simri and Cosby was anger. Zealous. Zealous and anger is two different things. Yeah, zealous and anger is two different things. When you have, when you're zealous, when you're zealous, um, you are in essence fighting for kedushat Hashem. You're not angry because your personal honor was mocked, or uh, you know deterred in any way, or uh, hurt in any way. You are hurt for your father. Somebody disrespected your father. Somebody disrespected the purpose of this world, the creator of the world, the everything of the world. It's not. It's not a matter. There's no. There's no anger there. This is someone that's going into your house and just says, "Lights a match." What do you mean? I do You think I'm just going to let you go? So that's zealous. Now, as a matter of fact, the Tana uh, Develiau. Um, Tana Eliyahu, the book of Tana Eliyahu, which is the book of Eliyahu Navi, which Chazal says, some say that Pinchas eventually became Eliyahu Navi in the same life. Some say that it was Eliyahu Navi was a Gilgul, was a reincarnation of Pinchas. Either way, the two are connected, and Eliyahu Navi never died. Now, if you look into the holy books, you see that Hashem told Pinchas, as a matter of fact, actually, it's in the, um, I think it's mentioned here. One second, let me finish the point. I can't answer five questions at a time. I just got to finish one point at a time. Um, so if, uh, no, I'd love the questions, just that I have to finish one point at a time. Now, if you look at the books, and you look at the story of, um, it's actually mentioned here in uh, Shmona Prakim. Um, it's Masechet Sanhedrin, page 113, and Yalkut Shimoni, the Midrash. Um, and it says, God says to Eliyahu Navi, I must remove you from this world. Not I have to kill you. I must remove you from this world. Why? The degree of zealousness that you have is not fit to live among these people. Because your zealousness is going to destroy all of them. You love me too much. You love me too much. Not that you're you're angry person, Khazushalom. You love me too much. You want my honor too much to the point where you're not letting them be human beings, which are frail and and, and, and you know nothings. You know so much truth that you can't handle somebody else not doing it. You can't handle seeing somebody lighting fire on Shabbat, driving on Shabbat, instead of you telling them, listen. Don't drive on Shabbat at Shabbat. What are you going to do? You're going to burn their car with them in it. You understand? Eliyahu and Avi, you're not fit for this world anymore. You became an angel. Became an angel. Became an angel. Go ahead. Yes, so the bottom line is that Hashem does not get angry. Does not have emotions, period. And therefore does not get angry. Right. But Hashem does punish. Punish, yes. Okay, so we're supposed, we're supposed to emulate also Hashem. So... Now, we can also punish, right? In a father-son relationship. Let's say your, your, your son does something wrong. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need to correct him. Sure. You need, so that's a lot. Oh, that's a mitzvah. It's mitzvah. So you can punish, but without anger. 
Right. So now, when when you have a, uh, you could show anger but not really be angry. Meaning, so you see, for example, sometimes a rav wants to correct his uh, his students. So, but to correct his students by saying, please, 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 sometimes doesn't work. Sometimes he has to show like a, he doesn't have to say much, but show like an angry face. It's just play. But it's, in reality, he's just trying to show them an image of what somebody looks like, what he would even look like if he's angry. In reality, he's not angry. But he has to show them that face to give them an image to remind him, hey, by the way, listen, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Why? Because there's a mitzvah in the Torah that all of us are obligated, which we'll also talk about in this Mishnah, called which means you must rebuke your people, which includes your children. You must rebuke them when someone is doing wrong, when someone is not polite, when someone is violating Shabbat, when someone is violating any type of mitzvah, and you have a connection to them. Either you're their parent, you're their friend, you're their uncle, you're their neighbor, you have some type of connection to them. You must rebuke them. But it also says, But you can't bring yourself to sin. Meaning, even the rebuke has to have a strategy. You can't just go into every single guy that drives on Shabbat and say, Genom, Genom, Genom. You can't say that. Why? Because then they're going to you know, start thinking of you as a crazy person. They're going to listen to you. Or some of these fools that throw rocks at people that drive on Shabbat, not realizing that throwing a rock is also not allowed on Shabbat. The rock is muktze. So sometimes we have to use our brain and realize that there's a way to rebuke. So, okay, so for example, you have somebody in your Beknesset. You know, the guy drives to nets. Drives to nets. Not only drives, he drives to nets. Extra early in the morning, every Shabbat. Make sure he gets there on time. You fool. Don't come to nets, don't come to anything. Stay home if you have to. Just don't drive on Shabbat. But nobody tells him. And he sits next to you in shul. Tell him, listen, by the way, I'm not sure if you follow the parasha. You remember the parasha where Hashem gave us the Ten Commandments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which commandment? You remember which commandment? You remember the commandments? He goes, yeah, more or less. I pray, nets, Shabbat, pray nets. Which commandment said you have to go to shul on Shabbat? He's going to tell you, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't remember being there a commandment. And the Ten Commandments... They have to go to Shul on Shabbat. Oh no? You sure? Yeah. Which commandment says you can't drive on Shabbat? The fifth commandment, when it says keep Shabbat, one of the 39 restrictions is lighting fire. When you light a fire, each time you light a fire, it's a sin of, it's, it's violating Shabbat. Fourth. Fourth. The problem is, huh? It's the fourth. The fourth commandment, yes. So the problem is that when you light a fire, it's one sin. When you turn on a car, it's much more than one fire. According to one of my uh, students, it's an engineer, each time you press the gas pedal and go 60 miles per hour, according to the RPMs, he's an engineer, he did the calculation, it's no less than 6,000 fires. So just driving... From your house, 15 minutes later, you got to the Bikneset, you're all happy, you got your little talit, with your little quarter keep on, you're running to the Bikneset at 5.30 in the morning, thinking you're doing the mitzvah, you just violated Shabbat somewhere between 800 to 900,000 times. Chazaku Baruch and Gehenom. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Each one is correct, of course. So now, you have a serious, serious problem. 
the important part is to know how to tell this guy this. And you tell him, listen, going to Biknesset is very nice. It's a mitzvah. But it's not an obligation in the Ten Commandments. It's not even an obligation in the 613 Commandments. 613 mitzvah is not an obligation. It's good to pray Minyan. It's good to pray in Biknesset. But Chasr Shalom is not over Shabbat. You're obligated to keep Shabbat. You're not obligated to go to Biknesset. Which means, if you cannot live next to a Biknesset, either move, because you don't live next to a Biknesset, or don't go to Biknesset. Stay home. Keep Shabbat. It's much more important. You can't go to Gan Eden if you drive on Shabbat. Even if it's the Biknesset, even if it's to the Bet Mikdash, even if it's to the Kotel, even if it's to wherever, wherever Gan Eden. You're not going, you're not, they're not going to let you in. So, oh, you drove here? Sorry, you can't get in. We only take people that walk. So people have to understand how to tell this to somebody. I am a much more blunt person. I think I say things as they are. Some people take it the right way. Some people take it the wrong way. Some people fight with me. Some people argue with me. Some people take it the right way and people do tshuva. I have one guy that I've been trying to help him do tshuva for over a year now. Uh, we've had many, many people that have done tshuva. But this one particular guy is uh, someone that's a kfuy tova, ungrateful person. And, you know, I sent him a package, sent him CDs, introduced him to this, answered a million and a half questions. And he decides that he's going to start criticizing my lectures publicly. He's going to start criticizing my lectures, write his little comments. Uh, and, uh, you know, in his opinion, oh, he's too hard, he's too harsh, he's too this, he's too that. Like, I made the rules. Like, I, like Hashem asked me, Hey, Yaron, what do you think of Shabbat? Which, which kind of punishment we should give? Oh, if it does, oh, okay, we're going to write that in the Torah. What else do you think we should do? Okay, no, okay, we're going to write that to you. He asked me, like, it's my permission. So, oh, he's too this, he's too that. Now, and he says the same thing about Rab Mizrahi, and he says this publicly, this fool, which makes him a Machtia Rabin. Now, he sent me this uh, thing, this uh, clip of another rabbi that I know, and he says, listen, he's saying that uh, you shouldn't be aggressive with people. Maybe he's talking about you and Rav Mizrahi. <laughs> and I said, instead of answering in the way that I, my anger wanted to answer him, you tova, you this, you that, and my anger wanted to answer him and give it to him on his head. I spoke the emails and this and that. So I said to him, uh, you know what? Let me ask you something. You keep Shabbat? You keep... No. You keep... It's hard for me. Keep kosher? Uh, Whenever I get a chance. You late tefillin? Oh no, I don't own them. I don't own tefillin, he tells me. He said... uh, What mitzvah do you keep? I'm nice to people. Okay, we'll send you a cookie. Fine. He says, okay, so I'm trying to find out what classifies you as a professional, as an expert criticizer on Kiruv or Judaism when you don't do either one of them. You don't keep any mitzvot, so you can't tell me you're an expert on Judaism. You don't know anything about it. You're still violating Shabbat as a Jew. Obviously, you don't know anything about Judaism. No one that actually knows and believes violates. Some people know and don't believe, so they violate. 
but some, the rest of the people, the vast majority of the public, violates only because they don't know. Miskenim. So we have to teach them. So this guy says that uh, he's going to tell me how to do my lectures, how to do Q, how to help people do Chuba, which Baruch Hashem, there's new people doing Chuba every single day. We have a news, uh, just uh, yesterday, a young kid was an atheist, maybe four or five months ago, Baruch Hashem, just started going to yeshiva. From atheist four months ago, Baruch Hashem going to yeshiva today. Same Torah that you're reading. You say it, you'll do the same thing. It has nothing to do with me. But it's the right way. It's the full Torah or part of the Torah. Part of the Torah doesn't work. Whole Torah works. So I tell him, how, how are you criticizing me? And you don't do anything. You don't, do you make anybody do tshuva? You don't do tshuva yourself. You can tell somebody how to do it. Not that I'm an expert, but what are you doing to, to make yourself think that you're that way? And that's the thing that people fail to understand. They have such a big yetzerah that if you go to a doctor and the doctor's going to tell you, listen, I see this is the diagnosis that you have. I think you need to do this one, two, three procedures. You're not going to tell them, listen, doctor, I don't know. You know what? The second procedure, I don't agree with. I think you should go from the aorta into the... He's going to look at his plan. Look, are you telling me how to be a doctor? What do you know about me? What did you go to medical school? Oh, I didn't go. Would you study medicine? I didn't study. So how are you telling me as a doctor what to do? You go to a lawyer. You tell you, listen, we're going to fight for this case. You're going to win these first three cases. The fourth case you're going to lose because we're going to do this. And this law is this and this law is that. He tells you the whole report. He says, no, you know what? I don't think you're fighting the right way. I think we should fight for the fourth one and not the other three. And I think this is illegal and that's legal. He goes, you know anything about law? Are you a lawyer? No. Do you study law? No. Have you ever been in a courtroom before? No. What would you do? Oh, I watched some cases on TV. In the movies. I saw Tom Cruise saying, you can't handle the truth. So that makes me a lawyer. Lawyers say, "Okay, listen. Honestly, I don't want to defend you anymore. I think you should go to you should claim insanity because that's what you are. You have a thing on your shoulder." Say, Baba say the doctor to believe what the patient say without his own research. So now, so with law, with medicine, with everything else, people they don't go into the doctor's office and tell them that. They don't go into the lawyer's office and tell them that. Why? Because they're paying them nine hundred dollars an hour to tell them what he's telling them. But to me, when I'm doing it for free, they want to tell me everything to do. No, you got to say this, you got to say that, you got to say this, you got to say that, because it's free. If they actually paid me $900 now, maybe they won't tell me what to do. So maybe I can start charging you guys. So blame him. So, <laughs> you have to be qualified. If you're going to judge somebody, you have to be at least at his level. At least at his level. That's why when, when somebody says, oh, I don't agree with the Rambam, or I don't agree with the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Kao, I don't agree with Rabbi Akiva. I don't, I don't think he's right here. You don't think he's right? He was able to revive the dead. You think your opinion matters, Bechlal? He was able to go from one place to another, it's a different city, in an instant. You can't even go to the bathroom in an instant. You're going to agree with him, disagree with him? You're still trying to figure out how to read what it says in, the, in Rashi over here. 
You're going to agree with him, disagree with, 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 the, with the Rambam, you're going to disagree with the, uh, Rabbi Akiva. That's the thing, people don't know the value of Torah. So they say they think it's like open to opinions. It's open to, you know, whatever your interpretation is. And what happened, and the reason why this all happened, is because you have people like the reformer and the conservative that made it popular to criticize the Torah and use our own measly opinions. Because the report that they have. It's because of? The report that they have. Sins that they make, yeah, of course. There's okay. plenty, plenty of sins, but nonetheless, it's also the audacity they have. It's a little shell around you, and the more sins you get, you have, you know, the more insensitive you get. Sure. That's the point. No. That's the way to make proof. That's not the sham, but we have to we have to know that what klipa is. Most people don't even know what it is. Most people don't know what the, the sin actually has consequences. They think that if it does have consequences, it's in the next world, not here. If it's more insensitive, and you, it's very hard, you know, if you have a if you have a shell of like you know of, of, of a yard around you, mm-hmm. you can't get through. Sure. What does it mean, an actual klipa? Like they they say you wait to see to get a building klipa. Mm-hmm. What are these klipa exactly? Bad angels. Couple of things. You have a uh, you have a uh, prophets. Uh, we don't understand the prophecy. As a matter of fact, it's also in this book. Um, Rambam explains that we have different in chapter four. I think explains that we have no, not chapter four. Explains we have different prophets. We see that. Um, it's said about Moshe Rabbeinu that Moshe Rabbeinu chapter 7 uh, Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to Hashem face to face but then the other prophets spoke to him in a dream in some type of a uh, epilepsy or some type of meditation but only Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to him face to face now the Rambam explains it is that each one of your midot this is in uh, chapter 7 of 8 Pakim each one of your midot each one of your qualities you have good qualities and you have bad qualities good character traits and bad character traits each bad character trait puts like a veil between you and Hashem a separation between you and Hashem so if you're stingy or you like money too much or you're an angry person or your uh, any other bad characteristic. Each one of those bad, bad characteristic makes gives a separation between you and Hashem, you and the truth, the ultimate truth. Each good character trait, obviously, that means you won't have a bad one. Each it's either good or it's bad. It's not in the middle. It's either you're angry person or you're not an angry person. So it removes one of these veils. So Moshe Rabbeinu got to the ultimate level of perfecting his midot to such an extent that he asked Hashem despite his humility he knew that he has reached a level to see Hashem face to face meaning he reached the ultimate level and he says show me your glory show me your glory meaning I got to the ultimate level I've, I literally think of myself as absolutely nothing the more of a nothing you think of yourself, the more of a something you really are. That's what Rabbi Nisim again, Zechat Tzadik Yivachai used to say. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, show me your glory, not because he says, listen, I'm the greatest uh, person that ever lived. No. I did everything you said. 
I don't have any anger anymore. I'm not stingy. I'm not this. All these bad traits, I don't have them anymore. So all of these veils that the ones before me and the ones after me have, because each one of them has something that's negative about them, I don't have those. So show me the ultimate level. Hashem says, yes, even though you've reached the ultimate level, I still can't show you my face. Why? Because if I show you my face, I have to remove you from the world. Because no man can see me, see my face and live. But he saw Hashem face to face per se, that he saw the ultimate, he saw Hashem through like an, an hourglass. There's still something there, but he saw this, but, was, but it's obviously much clearer than the way anyone else before him or after him ever saw him. Because each one of them had a different character trait that was one veil or two or three or five or so on. So when it comes to Klipot, it's much, much more deeper than that because that's not just a bad character trait, that's also additional sins. So each time, according to the Gemara, each time somebody makes a mitzvah, they create an angel. Each time they make a sin, they create a demon. So when somebody makes a demon, in essence, they're giving that demon power over them. And that demon is going to influence you. The more friends you make for him, the more sins you make, the more power they're going to have over the angels. So you have 80,000 demons that you created, and then you have 16 angels. Obviously the demons are going to, are going to create some havoc in your life. You're going to want to waste seed, you want to go with the Goya, you want to go with the Goy. You're going to want to steal, you're going to want to do all types of bad things. Why? Because you've made so many sins that the sin is going to become normal to you. And just like the Rambam explains, is that when someone is physically sick, everything that typically tastes good, tastes bad to them. Something sweet, usually is bitter to them. Something salty, for some reason, tastes good to them. I told you guys the funny story with my wife and the pizza a few years ago. He says the same thing with someone that's spiritually sick. Someone that's spiritually sick, the things that are good for him, the medicine, which is mitzvot, are bitter. They're bitter to him. doesn't taste good. Read Torah, come on. No, you don't have something else. You don't have maybe Sports Illustrated magazine. You know, maybe ESPN magazine. You don't have something else to read. Just this chumash thing, this 3,000-year-old book. You don't have anything new? Self-help book. A self-help book by Tony Robbins? Or the, uh, the secret? You, know, you don't have anything newer? This is old. It's 3,000 years old. We don't have something new? Because everybody thinks something new is better. Oh, you have the iPhone 5? Ah, that's old. I got the what is it, 7, 8, 18. Or what is it up to now? 7 plus? Ooh, what? I'm behind. Everybody wants something new. 3,000 year old book? No, it's too old for me. Come on, give me something new. You have something from like this year? This month maybe? Formula. So, that's the that's the flaw of mankind. We think that the things that are good for us are bad for us. Why? Because we've made many many sins. So the klipot, the klipot, you can feel them in a way where you are deterring good. When it's hard for you to accept Torah, when it's hard for you to do mitzvot, when it's hard for you to get up in the morning and go pray, when it's hard for you to do what Hashem wants you to do because you wrote it in the Torah. The more difficult it is for you to do a certain mitzvah, the more yetzalah you have for it. Some of it is from uh, from klipot, some of it is from just an evil inclination, or a combination of many other things. Five minutes of a, of a shiur, for instance, you can you can't absorb any more of a shiur. After five minutes, you shut down. 
So that's that was, that was my beginning. When yeah. I first started, when I first started going to Shua Torah after five minutes, I fall asleep. Right. That was my beginning. Yeah. All right, so let's start this Mishnah and see where we're at. Mishnah Yud Aleph. We continue with the Zugot. Last week was uh, we heard from Shmaya. This week we're hearing from Avtalion. Avtalion Omer. Which means, Avtalion says, Scholars, be cautious with your words. So Avtalion says, Scholars, be cautious with your words, for you may incur the penalty of exile and be banished to a place of evil waters, which means heresy. The disciples who follow you there may drink and die, and consequently, the name of heaven may be desecrated. Okay, so it's very deep Mishnah. We have to delve into it to figure out what it means before we go into the next Mishnah. So, first and foremost, Avtalion is telling us, he's not telling Amalek, he's not telling the general public this. He's telling this to the wisest of wise. He's telling this to the rabbis. Which means, needless to say, this also applies to everyone else. If the ones that are wise and know Torah are being told here, be cautious with your words, even more so the ones who don't know anything need to be cautious with their words. Doesn't mean it's only, this, this is a mitzvah only applies to rabbis. No such thing. If you're wise and you know Torah, of course you have to watch your words. But if you don't know Torah, you should watch your words even more. Try not to speak at all, Bichlal. So now who is this Avtalion that's telling us this? As we said last week, Shmaya and Avtalion were both converts. Righteous converts that got to such an extent that despite the rule at that time that the Sanhedrin could not accept converts, they not only became parts of the Sanhedrin, but they became the two leaders of the Sanhedrin. One became the Nasi and the other one became Avbedin. Now, Avtalion is also called Avtalion. Talion means little. I believe it's in Greek. And Av means father. He used to take care of little kids that were um, um, orphans. Didn't have any parents. He would take them in. And he had so many kids. Tell him he's, he's the father of all the little kids. So an amazing human being, needless to say. Because you don't do that by being a bad person, obviously. But here he's telling you, all of you that have learned Torah have to be very, very careful with everything that you do, everything that you say, because if you're not careful with what you say, all of your work, all of your efforts, everything that you've ever done can go into garbage in a second. There is a Gemara Masechet Ehuvin, page 13b, where it talks about a machloket, talks about a debate that Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel have for two and a half years. Two and a half years they're fighting about one particular issue. Now usually they fight, okay, a day, an hour, a week, a month, two and a half years, a long time. 
What are they fighting about? Was it worthwhile for man to come to the world or not? Is it for his benefit to come to the world or not? Bet Hillel says it's worth it. It's good for him that he came to the world. Bet Shammai says no. It was he was better off not coming to the world. Which one do you guys think won? They agree that it was better they didn't come. It's better. Shammai won. Says that it was better off that man didn't come to the world. Better off the man didn't come to the world. Now he's, so everybody says, okay, so let's all commit suicide, and that's it. What's, what are we doing here? We have hats, we have beards, we have mitzvot, we have all this stuff. It says it's not worth to come to the world. Okay, no. What are you teaching us here? So here is the explanation. Before we were here, we we're perfect souls. Once we came here, we had obligations. We have. Many opportunities to make mitzvot, but even more opportunities to sin. So since man has more of an opportunity to sin, it's more likely that he's going to sin than he is going to make mitzvot. Which means that if he comes to the world, he's going to have a lot of obstacles. And unless he has Torah, unless he's glued to the Torah, he's more likely to fail than he is to succeed. So it's better off that he didn't come. But the overall point of what they arrive at is that since he already came and it's not really up to him to decide whether to come to the world or not. It's not up to him. Hashem decides if you come to the world. Hashem decides if you're male or female. Hashem decides if you're tall or short. Hashem decides if you're Mexican, American, Jewish, uh, you know, a Catholic, uh, black, white. Hashem decides all these things, not you. You just decide whether you're going to have Yirat Shamaim or not. Whether you're going to have fear of the Almighty or you're not going to have fear of the Almighty. So, when Hashem... You have to let me finish the point. You can't raise your hands up for two seconds because it'll take five hours to finish the lecture. So give me a second to finish each point point, then we can ask questions. So, when Hashem is telling you here that you have a higher chance to fail, He's not putting you into the world to fail. He's not putting you into the world... Because he wants you, he wants to punish you. If he wants to punish you, just create gain and just put you in there, right? But he's giving you an opportunity to succeed. But the only way you're gonna know what success is, the only way you're gonna know that there's a choice, is by giving you both options. Now, if there is only one obstacle and fifteen hundred ways to win, like this generation, everyone gets a trophy, then no one's really a winner. First place and last place is the same; they all get trophies. In the reality, when they all get to 25 years old, they're all losers. Why? Because they're still living with Abba and Ima. They still don't have a job. They still don't have a... Their major in, uh, in, in college is riding horses. Like one of my students sent me, he goes, you know, tell, this, this, this college, this college is giving a course. One of the courses is learn how to ride horses. And you have to pay them for this. And the other one is learn how to fight Demons. And dragons. Learn how to fight dragons and demons. And the other one is ride horses. I'm still that serious. A real serious college in New York. I don't know how long the course is. You're gonna fight demons and get. I want to go fight demons and uh, and uh, dragons if they're gonna bring them. But if it's just uh, illustrations, that's not a real course. 
If I'm going to pay $10,000 for a course, I want a real course. But this is actually a serious course they're actually giving in college. People are paying ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a semester for this stupid course because they have no idea why they're alive. Why? Because they got trophies their whole life. They were 18th place in the race and they got a trophy, so they expect to win. So once they finally got to college, and the college said, listen, if you actually want to be a rocket scientist, a lawyer, a doctor, or anything meaningful in life, you have to take really difficult classes. You have to pass tests that are really, really difficult. You have to study long hours. You have to sleep less. You have to party less. You have to do certain things that maybe not so much fun. Or you could just force your parents to pay $40,000 a year for you to take horseback riding classes that you could get for 10 bucks on the BQE. So, this is when we don't know really what the meaning of life is. Now, Aftalion is telling us here that in order for us, each as an individual, to lead in the right direction, it starts with your mouth. starts with the words that come out of your mouth. In Gemara Masechet Sotah, page 42, it says there's four different types of people that the Shekhinah wants no part of them. The Shekhinah of Hashem wants nothing to do with them. They're in a room, Shekhinah goes somewhere else. They come to the Beknesset, Shekhinah leaves. They do a prayer, Shekhinah doesn't listen. All of them have to do with sins of the mouth. One of them being one that unfortunately all of us have failed at one time or another, which is Lashon Oh no, I don't like that rabbi. Oh no, that guy is a thief. Oh no, he charges too much. Oh no, he's this, he's that. You know, people think that they're helping, they're being helpful by telling people to stay away from somebody else for one reason or another. Are you really doing yourself the uh, you know a favor by doing that? You think you're doing a favor to the other person, but to yourself, you're destroying your future. You're saying pretty much all of your brachot, all your tefilot, according to the Gemara, are going in the side. They're not going in the garbage, but they're going in the side until you stop saying lashon So if you can't even control your mouth, how are you going to? operate in a, in a way that's going to be righteous with Hashem. Go ahead. Yes, you said that we are, our, our souls are, are, are perfect and we come to this world perfect, isn't it? That's what I learned. We all come, you know, with a certain purpose because we have to rectify something. Okay. We're not perfect upstairs in Shemayim and that's the reason why we come here because we have a tikkun and we have to repair stuff. Mm-hmm. We have to clean ourselves. That's the whole reason why we come to this world. Okay. Is it not right? What's the question? The question is that we're not perfect because no, you have a part of you that's part of you. It's part of Hashem. That part is perfect. The part, the rest of it is not perfect. Small part. That's a very small part. Right, but that's not. That wasn't the. uh, That was not the the point of what I was trying to make. I mean, if you have to, if you're the point. My question is, why do we come to this world? To fix something, right? Not, not correct. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Of course, you're only in this. As long as you're in this world, you have to fix something. Right. If we're, if we, if we have to fix something, we're not, we're not perfect. Right. Okay. That's that's all because it didn't make sense to me. 
Okay. So, the Rambam and Rabbeinu Yonah view this Mishnah as a reaction to the incident of Tzadok and Boethus, which were the students of Antigonus. Antigonus, as we learned from a couple of weeks ago, was one of the Zugot, which uh, said that serve Hashem as if you weren't getting a reward. Serve Hashem purely out of love. And these two students of Antigonus misunderstood this teaching. And I said, wait a minute, if the rabbi is saying, serve Hashem as if you're not getting a reward, as if there's no expectation of reward, maybe that means that there's no reward at all. Maybe they're just making it up. To charge his fees to go to yeshiva, to charge his fees to go to Beknesset, to earn stakah, do all this stuff. Maybe it's just a business. If they're saying, don't exp- serve Hashem, as if there's no reward. Maybe there's no reward. And they turn into complete kofrim. They turn into complete heretics. It started the Sadducees and uh, eventually other types of kofrim came from there. Today's kofrim are the uh, Messianics, the uh, Reforms, the Conservative, the ones that believe their rabbi is, uh, is the Mashiach or God. All types of kofrim, unfortunately, we have in the world. People that are not using da Torah, not using the, the mindset and the wisdom of Torah. This also includes people that say stupid things like, listen, your name is Steve and her name is, I don't know, Miriam. Nah, it's uh, according to Kabbalah, you shouldn't be together. According to Kabbalah, your names don't match, you're going to get divorced. This is pure nonsense. It's not da Torah. It's not Datoi. It does not say that Avraham Avinu married Sarah because her name was Sarah. It does not say that Moshe Rabbeinu married Zipporah because her name was or wasn't Zipporah. This is not Datoi. And the ones that say, this is usually comes from people that call themselves Mikubalim. These are uh, all types of Babas that 99.9999% of them are complete fake conmen. Some, most of the time actually outright criminals and you should stay away from them in all conditions real Kabbalists you won't even know they're Kabbalists I know a couple you won't know that they're Kabbalists you look at them in the street regular person no, 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 none of that stuff regular people I know one guy knows how to bend metal with his mind Avrech in Yerushalayim in Arnof he knows how to bend metal with his mind Whatever, he bends metal. I don't know if he's a uh, superhero, but Hashem, he has, he actually could, you know, he could actually control certain parts of nature. Another guy, Boch Hashem, has mamash, like, uh, extraordinary things. Boch Hashem, I was the last one to, uh, to uh, benefit, uh, because eventually he went a little off, because he went too deep into Kabbalah. He used to write uh, different real Kameas and Mezuzot. Uh, Baruch Hashem, that's the mezuzah that I have in the front. That mezuzah, you can pay $50,000 for it, you won't find something like that. It's a really big one, certain cloth, this, that, whatever. Long story short, is that, yes, there are some, but you won't know who they are. Yeah, it's people that fast all day, all night. It's very, very different type. The guy that's wearing all the crazy clothes and is charging you $1,000 for some weird bottle of water and gives you a black book, for $15,000, and you're not going to understand one word out of it, that's not, that's not, that's the businessman, that's a con man. 
And many of them are actually outright criminals, where once they, you discover that they're con men, they actually, uh, you know, they'll, they'll do everything they can uh, to, uh, what's called, to stop you from, from telling the public. So these Kabbalists use, yeah, these Kabbalists use different types of things to take advantage of naive people that don't know Torah. And tell them, listen, I can tell you everything about you. Oh yeah, well, what can you tell me? You were angry this week, right? Yeah. Was it Tuesday? No, it was Wednesday. Yeah. It was something to do with work. How did this guy know? Did your girlfriend call you that way? It was your wife. Not girlfriend. Wife called you. And all of a sudden, it seems like this guy is like a fortune teller slash Mekubal, Navi, Moshe Rabbeinu, Avraham Avinu, all wrapped into one. This is nothing more than knowing how to read your face. Which I can do also. I can do also. I used to play poker. You learn how to read people's faces. Anyone that has chokhmah of how to read people's faces, you can do it. And aside from that, it's also how fortune tellers make their money. They just tell you things that are general. Of course I'm going to tell you, you were angry. Everyone was angry. I'm going to say Tuesday, then change it to Wednesday, because I'm going to see how your face changed. Most likely, it was either Tuesday or Wednesday, you got angry. And you, what were you angry about? What else are you going to do in your life? You either go home or you're at work. 90% of your day you go to work, so I'm going to pick work. Who's not angry at work? And I give you different general things to take advantage of your naivety and foolishness. And it gives different facts like that. And it's different body language. Like for example, when somebody is folding their hands, they're comfortable. When someone is going like this, they're lying. When someone is touching their face, they're lying also most of the time. Again, these are not rules of thumb, but these are general things. And there's many, many other things you can do. Yeah, there's body language, there's reading the face, and different things. Um, he studied in a different way than I did. He, I think he actually studied some type of course or different parts of the Torah to teach it. I studied it from playing poker. Uh, not exactly the you know ideal, but unfortunately that was the, that was the world I was in. Um, but nonetheless, it's a uh, it's all a scam. It's all also you're for, if you're a salesman, you need to know how to read people. And I can give you guys a basic a basic idea. Secret of sales, I'll give you a basic idea. Um, when we did sales, 99.9% of everything that I ever did, which means millions and millions of dollars, were generated over the phone. Never in person. Once in a blue moon, a client would come to visit me. Or I'd go see a client. But most of the time, I try not to do it because it was a waste of my time. I, didn't like, I don't like the meeting people today. I never liked meeting people in the past. So usually it's a waste of time. That you could just establish everything you need to establish over a phone call. It'll take you much less time. You don't need to travel for an hour each way. You don't need to you know, go to some fancy restaurant you don't even care for. You don't have to spend 40 minutes trying to figure out what you're going to talk about. You just get to the business. Hi, Mr. Jones. I want ABC. You want ABC. We both want the same thing. Let's get to business. Five minutes later, you're finished with the call. But when you go out... And you whine, and you dine. Oh, what do you think of politics? Oh, what do you think of Trump? Oh, how many kids do you have? Oh, how many kids do you have? Do you think the weather is really nice? Who cares about the weather? You really came here for this dinner at 9 o'clock at night because you care about the weather? Really? You have nothing else to do with your life and care about the weather? No, it's a small talk. People like small talk. I personally care less for small talk. So I didn't like meetings. But once in a while, I was obligated to have a meeting because the client wants to meet me. 
And if you already, if it was a serious client, I'd meet him. But in general, 99% of my business was over the phone. Now, over the phone is much more difficult to make a sale. Because part of a sale is made by buying a personality. Now, it's much harder to express your personality when it's purely just your voice. And it's not your facial expressions, and your body movements, and your shaking hands, and the hugs, and the whining and dining, all that stuff that everybody else uses. The fake smile. Oh, wow, you look good. Even though the guy's 90 years old with a stick, he's about to die right now. Oh, you look great. Like all the fakeness that people do, it's, it's nonsense. But that's, that's how you make a sale. So when your phone, when it's purely phone, it's just voice. It's facts, it's to the point, but also it's, you have to know how he's reacting. Now, there are certain parts of sale, not all of them, but there are certain parts of a sale that are predictable. Meaning, if I want to sell you something, I know what you're going to say before you say it. And I already have a response for whatever you're going to say before you have before you even know that that's going to be what your response what your excuse is going to be. And after I give you my response, I know what your response is going to be for my response. Pretty much, I already know a 45 minute an hour conversation before it takes place. Not because I'm a prophet, but just because there's only a handful of responses you can give me. There's not an infinite amount of response. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're John from Texas or you're Steve from Bulgaria or you're uh, whoever you are. There's a handful of reasons of why you're going to tell me no. And for each one of those reasons, I'm going to have a response for already, premeditated response. And for each response you're going to give me to my response, I'm also going to have a premium. This is, this is cold calling in essence. But it's cold calling at a much higher level. Now, once you get to that point where you know their response, eventually what I got to a point where I was able to not even listen to you. Meaning, I was only listening to one word. You could talk to me for five hours. Talk for an hour straight, it doesn't really make a difference what you say. I'm only looking for one word. One word would tell me exactly everything that you said. Which is the reason why sometimes I try to hold myself from doing it, but sometimes somebody will try to ask me a question and I cut them off. Like three words into it, I already know what you're going to ask. You have like a whole prepared question, you worked on it all week. Oh, Rabbi, you know in Parashat Shavua, Avram, and uh, had this one and that one. And after the third word, I already know what you're going to ask me. But you have this whole like, you know, Megillah that you put together of this question, which really in the end you could have actually wrote the whole thing in three words. But you prepared it nice and you put a lot of thought into it. But because of my profession, previous profession, I already know how to get to the point very quickly because I had to digest a lot of information really, really fast. I digest uh, analytical reports really fast, market reports, different things. I have to find a way to, find, to get to the point really quickly. For example, if you want to read a book and you don't really have much time, you want to get to the point of the book, read the, or not a book, but like a letter, first sentence, last sentence of each paragraph will tell you the whole point of the letter. There's three paragraphs. First sentence, last sentence of each paragraph. So let's say three paragraphs, six sentences will tell you what's pretty much the point of the whole letter. So the book that's 800 pages could have been written 30 pages. Most books in general has a bunch of fluff and most, most books have, you know, you could write them in 20, book, 20 pages. So most of what we say is fluff. 
Most of what we say is, 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 is you know, sugarcoating. There's not much, like, real wisdom in every single word. So, in the business world, it gets, I got to a point where I was able to literally just look for, you know, I could even put the phone down. Put the phone down, let you talk for five minutes straight, and then pick it up, and listen to one word, and I give you the response. And even got to a certain point where eventually I would be half asleep because I didn't sleep the whole night or something like that and still wake up in the middle of the call and still answer. And still know exactly what you're doing and still make yourself a million bucks. It's not about talent. It's just something you, you develop skills. You do it, you'll do the same thing. The point I'm trying to make here is that there is a con to everything. There's a tactic to everything. You can use everything for good. You can use it for bad. I can use that talent for good. I can use that talent for bad. I can be a con man. Or I can get to a point and get to the you know, bottom line issue of what this guy is trying to tell me or what you're trying to ask me or really what the underlying problem is with this slumbite. I don't need the wife to send me a six-page letter explaining to me why her husband is the worst person on earth. I can just ask us three questions and find out pretty much is this good or is this bad. You know, because usually when people give you the picture, they give you a lot of fluff, but in reality, it's like three points. So, this is, in essence, what these fake mikubalin do. They take advantage of other people that are naive, that don't know the tricks to the trade, and they take advantage of you not knowing anything in general about the Torah. So, they say, listen, you were angry? Oh, anger is very bad. Oh, you know what? You have Aina on you. Everybody has Aina. Everybody's scared. Every secular person on earth is scared of Ayin more than they're scared of Hashem. You tell a secular person, Ayin what can I do? $15,000, no problem, Kabbalist, no problem. Where do I write the check to? Can I give you cash? You take cash? Like he's, like he's doing you a favor. If I give you 20000 can it can it take away the Ayin faster? And these people have destroyed lives. I even know of recent stories. You guys don't think I'm just making this stuff up. This stuff happens every day. Story from fresh from last week. The Mekubal um, had a uh, woman come to him. Chiloni doesn't keep anything. And uh, she tells him, listen, I was with this guy for uh, a few years. I thought he was my soulmate. But we ended up breaking up. Then I actually ended up getting married. And uh, I ended up getting divorced. And I'm thinking, maybe I should go back to him. He says, yes, you're right. He's your soulmate. You should go back to him. You should get married to him. Okay. Nothing wrong. She goes, looks for this guy. She finds out not only is this guy married, he's happily married. She goes back to the Mekupal. Mekupal is folded. The Mekubal, she goes back to him. Did he have a big beard? Long beard, sweep the floor. With a nice hat and a few, uh, and two pairs of glasses. And uh, she goes back to this liar, cheater, Rasha. He tells him, okay, listen, um, he's uh, married. Oh, and I realized, I actually spoke to my, uh, some other rabbi, and he says that even if he wasn't married, I wouldn't be able to be with him because I'm divorced and he's a Kohen. Cohen can't marry a divorce. Kabbalah says, no, don't worry about it. We're going to fix that for you in Shemaim. Since he was your soulmate, and we could see it, go break up the marriage, marry him. Don't worry, everything is okay. Just 
make sure the check clears. This is what she. This is what he told him. Now, Baruch Hashem, she was fortunate enough that there was a couple of people that actually knew a lot of Torah that uh, she was uh, friendly with that got her away from this Rasha Merusha. But unfortunately, there's a lot of them in Israel, in America, in every place. In general, I'm telling you, if the guy is telling you anything in Kabbalah stuff, more times than not, it's fake. What if he tells you, like, you should do this because this is going to be the way you're going to get rich? Like I, Where is he, God? No, that's a few of them. When did he become God? In this world. There is you don't have, you know, you can't decide, you can't decide when you're going to be rich or not. What about the hand readers? No, a lot of big rabbis. Not allowed. A lot of big rabbis tell me, it's a sin. This, should do this. Keep Shabbat. Yeah. Keep mitzvot. Do the will of Hashem. Stop liking money so much, maybe you'll be rich. The more you like money, the less likely Hashem no, is going to give it to you. you. They tell you how, like, what's going to happen. Okay, I'm going to tell you that after this year, I'm going to go fly outside above you guys and say, oh, my sons, that means it's going to happen. But Hashem, Hashem didn't, means nothing. doesn't give any, any, any people the ability to have future, uh, you know, events. There's no prophecy anymore. This is the Bet HaMikdash. What about that one? There's no prophecy in this world anymore. They know to so can't, open the book of Rabbi. Can they do this book with the destiny Open the book and a certain verse. If you actually know how to do it, the Shittat of the Arizal. There's certain people that actually know how to do it. Yes, but again, it has to be. It has to be someone that knows how to do it. it has to be know, somebody who knows the you know Torah. It's but again, it's not fortune telling. There's a difference, and it's also not telling you to do strange things that are against the Torah. It's using a verse in the Torah trying to give you something a message. But when somebody tells you. You shouldn't marry because of our name. You should wear some weird string. You should do things that are above and beyond the Torah. There's no foundation for it. And again, even the Kabbalists, the real ones, that have different things that are uh, you know, above and beyond the standard, they wouldn't even tell it to you to do. More times than not. And the reason why is because you don't have the merit to do it. In order for you to exercise real Kabbalah, you have to be a very, very pure person. We're still trying to figure out how to keep Shabbat. We're still trying to figure out how to stop saying Lashon Ara. We're still trying to figure out how to wake up in the morning and do tefillin. You want to do Kabbalah? Kabbalah involves very, very holy names that are of angels and of Hashem. And if you're not pure enough and holy enough, and you say them, it could actually create a lot of damage in your life to the point where you can go crazy. It's very dangerous stuff. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not games. So people that are telling you that using Kabbalah and drink this water or Kabbalah all this stuff, it's nonsense. What type of, like, is it Kabbalah? What is it? Like, what is it's it? parts of the Zohar. It's knowing how to, how to do certain things. There's certain things you say. There's certain words you say. certain names of Hashem. I could show it to you. I could show you certain things about Kabbalah, but it's not going to help you in life. It's not going to help you. What's going to help you is... What's going to help you is learn how to be a Jew. Learn how to be a human being. Learn how to be patient. Learn how to have you know, good manners. Learn how to learn. Learn how to be a student. Learn how to you know, teach one day. Learn how to be a good husband. That's going to help you in life. You know, Quick fixes to be rich. Quick fixes to uh, uh, do all types of things is not going to help you in life. You had a question in the back? What's the purpose of Kabbalah? It's, it is it is holy. It is very, very holy. It is um, something that we can utilize for good. But it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. You know, say there's certain tricks to certain trades. 
that are not for everyone and everything. You know, so for example, there's certain knowledge that I had in the investment business that I had, I understood, that was relevant to me, but not the clients. So it's very useful to me, but it's not useful to the client. This is for the, the Kabbalists, it's for their relationship with Hashem? It's, for the most part, it's for their own relationship with Hashem, and in general, real Kabbalists only use their Kabbalah when there's no other choice. Isn't it? And it's for the public. It's not usually for one person. Isn't and it's it when there's no other choice. For the person indeed to come closer to Hashem, the more inside information, the more you know, hidden information you have, the more you grow spiritually, and you get. That's the ultimate goal: is to get closer to Hashem. Yes, but the inside information you don't actually know what it means. As a matter of fact, in Gemara Masechet Chagigah. It explains that there's Maaseh Merkava, Maaseh Bereshit. There's two different parts of the Torah. What so happens before the world? Isn't it so that Hashem reveals only that kind of information to a person that a person is allowed, is, is able to absorb, is able to understand? The information is available to everyone, but not everyone is going to understand it. Exactly. So there's many things in the Torah that... Right, so let me finish. So there's many things in the Torah that are available to everyone, but I, you can read this Gemara and not understand one word. Yeah, that's right. So uh, in general, there are certain things you're not allowed to teach. One person understands it, another person doesn't understand it. Right, but there are certain things you're just not allowed to teach in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not allowed to teach it. Yeah. Uh, you're actually not allowed to teach Kabbalah to the public. You're not allowed to teach uh, certain parts of Bereshit, of what happened before this world, different mystical parts of Judaism, uh, you know, things about God. You're not allowed to teach it to the public. You're actually, as a matter of fact, even if you're teaching it to someone that's, you know, that's a uh, um, one person, that person has to be at a certain level where just from you saying a few words, he would already understand what you mean. So then the so this is all in this Gemara Masechet Chagiga, and the Gemara says, okay, so how is it that certain people are teaching the masses? There are certain people that are teaching things that are not allowed to the mass public. You have Kabbalah Center. You have uh, all these different uh, every every Kabbalah Tuesday is a new Kabbalah guy. Kabbalah Center is fake. Right. So what, what every every Tuesday there's a, there's a new Kabbalah person. Every Tuesday you see an Orthodox rabbi. Okay, you want guys want to learn Zohar? Oh, I teach Zohar. Forty-five minutes when I teach you Zohar. So, so the Gemara asks, how could this be? If you're not allowed to teach the Zohar to the general public, you're not allowed to teach the Kabbalah is part of the Zohar. You're not allowed to teach Kabbalah to the general public. You're not allowed to teach certain parts of the mystical part of the Torah to the general public. How is it that people teach it? No, no. How does Hashem allow it? Says so you're not allowed. He says what they're teaching is nonsense, and they the people that they're teaching won't understand what they're saying anyway. So it's like you're talking, you're speaking English to a cow, expecting it to come, you know, start doing stock trades for you. It's not gonna. It's still a cow. Not to say that people are cows, but nonetheless, you get the point. You're speaking to them in a language they don't understand. So let's move on to this point because I think it's getting late, but. Avtalion is telling us, as Chachamim, he's telling us, as leaders, you have to be very, very careful with the word you say, because if Antigonus, one of the most righteous, holiest, smartest human beings that ever lived, said a few words in a way that two of his own students 
not only misunderstood him, but they went completely off the derech. They became koflim. No, this uh, um, um, what's his name? Uh, wow. Yeshua ben Pachia. Yeshua ben Pachia was Jesus' rabbi. So I'm terrible with names. So, uh, but yeah, Yeshua ben Pachia. So Antigonos is uh, you know was a righteous person, holy person, one of the original Tanas, and even he said a certain teaching that his own students didn't understand and made them kofrim. The foundation of kfirah says you have if he has to be careful. With the way he teaches, you must be careful. Because if you're not careful, it can lead to heresy. It can lead to people like this that are going to take your words and twist them into something completely that it's not. And then the students that you're going to actually create, they're going to continue teaching it. So even when somebody goes, let's say they got the Gan Eden, they were tzaddik, they were righteous, they did the right thing, they kept Shabbat, they kept mitzvot, everything was great. And they wrote a book. And in the book, they put an halacha, but it wasn't clear what their opinion was. And it looked more like their opinion, what they said, was wrong. Now the students are going to say, listen, whatever our rabbi says is kadosh. Whatever our rabbi says, 100% holy. Now they're going to look at this book and say, oh, the rabbi says X, Y, Z. He didn't say that. But that's what they understood because he wasn't clear with his words. Now according to the Gemara, Maseret Rosh Hashanah, page 17, it says that every year on Rosh Hashanah, everyone comes in front of Hashem. Not just everyone from here. Everyone from there, including Gan Eden, including Gan Eden and Gehenom, they also come in front of Hashem. You either get rewarded or punished for the outcome of your actions. Wait a minute, I'm hanging out in Gan Eden. I already got to the next world. What do you want for my life? Okay, but yeah, but you left the book that you wrote 500 years ago, right? In that book you said, it's okay to do ABC. It's not okay. That's not what I said in my Torah. No, no, but I didn't mean that. Okay, but you should have been clear. So now you have a whole generation of people that think it's okay because you said it. You have a problem, my friend. You have a problem. All of those people are sinning because of you. That's a serious, serious problem. What is it like? Moshe Feinstein, some years ago, a student saw him have two milk cartons in front of him. And he picked one up and he put it down and he picked the other one up and he used it. And he poured milk in his coffee. Immediately, you know, it was two different companies, the, the milk. One was A company, the other one was B. Two different companies. He picked, the, he picked the milk up, looked at it, put it down, the other milk, poured it into his uh, coffee. Immediately a student publicized Moshe Feinstein is against this milk. The company overnight, no one started buying from them. No one was buying from them. It was going bankrupt. The entire Jewish community came on this milk company. Miskinian, what they do? The other one, on the other hand, sales are rocking. Moshe Feinstein's buying their milk. 
A few days pass, the company is getting no sales, cancelled sales, cancelled contracts. We don't want your stuff anymore. Why? said, Moshe Feinstein put a cherem on you. What do you want from us? What do we do? They call the Rav. For the Rav, what, what do we do? What did you do? What, what do you mean? What did you do? Because why did you put cherem on us? I put cherem on you? I don't even know you. Because no, people said that you don't, you don't uh, drink our milk. Why not? What's wrong with your milk? We're asking the same question. Why is everyone saying that you picked up our milk and then you put it down and then you picked up our competitor's milk and you drank that one? So they're saying that you don't like our milk. It's not kosher. He goes, no, not at all. I picked up your milk. I noticed there's no milk in the carton. (laughs) So I picked the other one because there was some milk left. You understand? Ma'im ra'im, that's ma'im ra'im. That's heresy. That's what people make mistakes. They start picking words. I have this woman, I made a short shira last week, believe it or not, for 30 minutes. You know, one of the recordings, the daily chidush. Daily chidush is usually shorter, anywhere from 5 minutes to 30 minutes. So I made one of the 30 minutes uh, chidush. About different things, modesty, this. It was a response to a question that I had from another student in, uh, I believe, London. Sadiqa was telling me the problems with the uh, religious Jewish world today. Unbelievable. People go to a seminar thinking they're going to become more religious, they become less religious. Because rabbis are telling them, no, you should never tell people tough things, you should be nice to people. Can't tell. Nonsense. So, I responded to this. So, when I was a 30 minute shoe, of course, we use sources, we use page numbers, we use parashot. Nothing from our... This one woman sends me a text. Use this one word. I used this one word. I think it was tameh or impure, whatever I used to describe immodesty. And she called it kfira. She called me a kofir. She called me a heretic. She called me JC. Pretty much. Heretic. That's what JC was. Because it's one word. I use this word, which she says, I understood what you meant. She says, I understood what you meant. But I don't think anybody else understood. So automatically, you see, number one, she already thinks everybody else is stupid. And she's the only smart one she understands. So that's number one. Number two, you have 30 minutes your one word. In 30 minutes your as you can see, is a lot of words. I talk a lot about Hashem. Question, how you said throughout? So, what about the other 29 minutes and 59 seconds? Also, tefillah? You didn't complain about that. Point is that people are always going to look for little things. They always look to micromanage. Whatever she is. The point I'm trying to make is that, yeah, usually people that complain are usually not the ones that follow the mitzvot. But, the point I'm trying to make is that people are already looking for excuses. They're already looking for you around the corner. They're already looking for you to slip on a banana. They're already looking for you to make a mistake. What are you giving them a layup for? By saying things that you don't know 100% are 100% true. And this is actually advice to people that teach. Because now, in today's age, everybody wants to be a rabbi. Why? Because YouTube was created. 
Torah Anytime was created. Uh, you know, a bunch of other websites uh, are created. You could put anyone can put their uh, their stuff online, and you know, because they want to the world to give them kavod. You know, they're not going to make a videotape of ducks crossing the street. They're going to make a video of them reading Pasha Shavua. So they record themselves, and everybody wants to be a rabbi. The problem is, not everybody qualifies to be a rabbi. And by that, I don't mean they don't qualify to be a rabbi because they didn't take some test. There is no test for giving speeches. There is no smicha for giving a for being a rabbi that does kiruv or a rabbi that teaches classes. There's no smicha. There's no such smicha for that. The overwhelming majority of, of rabbis that actually do real kiruv don't have a smicha. They don't because there's no smicha for it. You could get a smicha for for, for I don't know for being uh, a butcher. You could be, have a smicha for running a shul. You could be a smicha for weddings. Smicha for brit milah. We speak about different things, like the you know the, the the green essence. You have to go to school for a couple of years, yeshiva, and so on. But there's no smicha to actually do kiruv or things like that. So now everybody can just call themselves rabbi, or even if they don't call themselves rabbi, they want to do shiutah. They record themselves on the phone because everybody's a cameraman today. They record themselves on the phone. They start giving shiutah. The problem is that not everybody has as much dedication on it, so people have a very very hard time sticking to the script. They have a very hard time sticking to what it actually says in the Torah, and they say their opinion. And that's the problem. Because your opinion is usually based on your heart. The Torah is based on a divine brain. They're worlds apart. Your heart is emotional. If you like it, you're going to say it in a certain way. You don't like it, you're going to say it in a different way. You may not even say it at all. Divine brain, this is true, this is false. Hashem's wisdom is is what it is. You can't debate it. Oh, I don't agree with you, Hashem. So now, what happens? Certain people that, unfortunately, are becoming popular, are saying things that are outright kfirah. Outright things that are against the Torah, because it doesn't fit their humanistic personality. So, for example... If you know the names or you know these people, don't say the names because I don't want to go into a public war with anyone, at least not yet. If I wanted to, I would say their names. I don't have a problem saying names, but for this particular purpose, it's not necessary. There's one particular guy I already mentioned in the past, that guy Tzachi or whatever his name is. He's a kofel, he's a messianic, uh, calls himself a messianic Jew. Yeah, the kosher pig. Yitzchak Shapiro, yeah. He calls himself Tzachi. That guy is a uh, considered a mean. He's considered one of the people that will go to a uh, hell and never leave unless he does tshuva. Because uh, he's converting people to Christianity. He's a kofir with no end. Uh, so him, I don't mind saying his name. Other people, I don't think they intend on being kofir. I don't think they intend on being heretics. But they're stupid. And it's not because they're stupid because they don't know Torah. They're stupid because they use their opinion when it's least appropriate. So for example, this one guy made a few shurim about it, where he said, listen, if you have uh, sexual desires, and your wife doesn't want to be with you, then go with a prostitute. Go with a prostitute. This is 
Rabbi said this. Whoever listens to him, I usually do. Whoever actually listens to him, I usually do privately. But I haven't gone to public law for a reason. I'll tell you in a second. This guy says, listen, if your wife doesn't want to be with you, go to a prostitute. It's better for you to go to a prostitute. I listened to this, I wanted to vomit. I don't usually listen to Rabbi, I don't have much time. But somebody sent me this, and I said, this must be a mistake. So I started looking into some other things. Then I see another one, he says, if your wife doesn't want to go to the mikveh, you can still be with her. Don't force her to go to the mikveh. Don't force her to be in the mikveh. This is outright kfirah. This is outright heresy. Why? Because being with a woman, without her being tala, without her being pure, and going to the mikveh, is a worse sin than incest, than being with your mother, your sister, everybody together. That's how bad it is. A woman that's not in the mikveh, you're not allowed to touch her. Not allowed to touch your wife. Not even touch her hand. Not allowed. You, she's, she's impure to you. To the rest of the world, she's fine. Which also answers another question. Somebody else that wrote on the message board said something about, uh, he, he made it like as if it was a rule. A woman is not allowed to go to synagogue when she has her period. It's complete nonsense. Who said this? What Allah says this? What Shulchan says this? What, what, who says this? People just may know she's impure. It's like the people that weren't allowed to go to the Bet HaMikdash. No, it has nothing to do with it. First of all, she's impure just to our husband. To the rest of the world, she's fine. She's still allowed to hug our kids. Still allowed to you know, hug our parents. It's not impure to them. She's never allowed to hug another man. She's never allowed to be with another man anyway. So she's always impure to another man. That's because she's married, not because she's nida. And as far as you know, someone that was not allowed to go to the Bet HaMikdash, that's because they were either had tzara'at, which was a spiritual disease, for some sin that they made, one of five sins, or because they had the impurity of the dead. It has a dead animal, or a dead body, or so on. But people just throw out a chot, oh yeah, a woman's not allowed to go to synagogue when she's nida. This is the craziest thing in the world. Why not? Who says this? What Allah is this? Kabbalah maybe... Kabbalah, in Kabbalah, in Kabbalah, in Kabbalah, people that are Kabbalists, people that actually know Torah to that high level, they wouldn't sit in the same chair as the woman that just sat there that was Nida. Like I said, that's Moshe Rabbeinu. We're trying to keep Shabbat. We're trying to learn to stop being angry. We're trying to learn how to not be cheap. We're trying to be human beings. We're not Kabbalists. You're not allowed, according to the Rambam, you're not allowed to teach humrot. You're not allowed to teach stringencies until someone gets used to all of the mitzvot. All of them. Not one, not two, not three, not four. All of them. becomes acclimated to all the mitzvot. They become his nature. In today's world, minimum, it takes 20 years. Minimum. If you learn everyday Torah, minimum after 20 years, maybe you'll become used to them. Maybe. Which means that stringencies and things like that are not relevant to us. They're not relevant to us. Sit in a certain chair, not sit in a certain chair. It's nonsense. And, but the thing is, people take this so far, they start saying, oh no, a woman's not allowed to go to synagogue. Who are you to say she's not allowed to go to synagogue? You're not allowed to go to synagogue with your tamay mouth. The stupidity that comes in your mouth is much more impure than she is to her husband. People don't know how to behave. Give you guys an understanding of what that to is. 
and how it doesn't make sense to us initially, but then you'll understand. In Gemara Masechet Brachot, it says, when someone has a dead body in his house, somebody died in his house, Hashem Now, you can't just bury him right away. Maybe it's Shabbat. Can't go bury him. Maybe nobody's there. Yes, he's home. And in those days, it wasn't a 2,000 square foot house was the smallest house in the neighborhood. In those days, the whole house was a room. It says, if you want to eat, you're in the same house. You want to eat, put a separation between you and a dead body. Put like some type of curtain of some kind to separate you and a dead body. Say that? What if you don't have a curtain? Then sit down opposite of him, meaning look away and eat. Sit down and look away. Body's over here. Shemelachem. You're sitting over here, but you're looking away. You're eating your little shawarma sandwich, looking this way. Why doesn't the Gemara say Gemara is divine wisdom. It's not me wisdom. It's not you wisdom. Divine wisdom is God talking. Why doesn't you go outside and eat your shawarma? I have to eat next to the dead body where I have nothing else to do with my life? Well, I put ketchup on him? What, what am I eating with him? For what? Yeah, going, outside. going outside. No, like everybody else goes to Shwama place, each you see the the, the little uh go down and you know, like this. Isn't that when when there's nobody around because you, you can't leave a body by itself. No no you can leave him, you can leave him. You, not by himself. No, you can leave him, you can leave, you could you can leave him, no problem. You can leave him. That's not the reason. What's the shooting gonna do with your food? Nice to be somebody no, not, not the night, the afternoon. It's twelve o'clock in the afternoon. Guy just died. Somebody has to stay with... with Why? Well, he's going to run away to that body? No, 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 no. But because that's spirit, there's spiritual rule for that because because of the neshama. Okay, you're going to be outside the door. Somebody's supposed to be with the body all the time well, until he's buried. No, the house is the size of this table. Right. If I'm here or I'm there, it's the same thing. Open the the door. door is over there. I just eat outside. God doesn't say that. It says, sit opposite of him, look the other way. Yeah. Right. You're not allowed to go outside. Maybe it's it's not the reason. Maybe it's for a month. Huh? For a month in distance? No. No? What is the reason we give up? What's the reason? You're not to be afraid. The reason you're never going to think of it. It's because it's horrible ethics to eat in public. It's better that you eat next to a dead body looking away then go eat outside in public with the tchina possibly going down on your cheeks and a little lafafon falling off your teeth. It's considered disgusting to eat in front of people like that. That's why you don't see any big rabbis going to a public restaurant. As a matter of fact, you don't even see a rabbi eating with the public. Usually they eat in the corner alone. In general, people eating is, is not really the prettiest thing in the world. I personally don't find it pleasing. It never did. But people eat. I have to eat. I'm sure I'm not the prettiest eater either. But in general, it's not the prettiest thing. But the Gemara is telling you here, for, for as far as ethics, as far as midot, eating in public in general, disgusting, horrible. You're going to eat, go eat in the corner. Don't eat in front of people. 
Why? Because maybe the tchina is going to fall off and, and you're going to look disgusting. Why, what happens if you're disgusting? Because chilul Hashem. If you, if you pick your nose in front of people, it's like chilul Hashem. Chilul Hashem. So that's 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 divine Torah. You understand? You're thinking for a moment. You're thinking leaving the dead. Maybe he's going to run away. Maybe he's going to wake up. You know, he's going to be there. He's going to be disappointed. Thinking all these different crazy things that we think. No, no, no. It has to do with your eating. Don't eat outside. Eat next to the dead body. It's much better. That's that Torah. You understand? Of course, eating people go to the shawarma place. There's no chairs. There's no chairs. There's trauma. They start walking around. Hey, how are you? Yeah. That's Torah. You understand? So it's not always not always uh, common sense to us, but it is Torah. So now he says you have to be very careful with what you tell your students. This rabbi is telling your students that a man is allowed to be with his wife even though she's nida is creating heretics. He's creating people that are 100% heretics. There is a, uh, and there's, unfortunately there's several people like that. There's people that are teaching people things out of their own opinion. There's another rabbi that tells people, listen, doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not Jewish, you're allowed to keep Shabbat. It's against Allah. It's, it's against the Rambam. No, no, but he decided to be the new Rambam. He decided to be the new Rambam. Goyim are allowed to keep Shabbat. It's 100%. So again, I don't think he's intentionally being a heretic, but it's 100% heresy. So, you have to, this Mishnah is specifically telling us here, my sons, with all the wisdom that you have, use it. And don't just speak with no direction. Don't speak with no script. Study what, you, uh, what you're going to say many, many times over before you ever say it, like the Rambam used to say. What you're going to say, study it many, many times before you're going to say it. Become biki. Biki means an expert. An expert in what you're going to say before you say it. Don't become an expert during the shiul. Don't learn with your talmidim. Learn before. They could sharpen you, but learn the basics before. Why? Because if you are making a mistake, your students eventually, they're going to want to take your position. They're going to want to be rabbis. Like I have a couple of students... They're tired of being students. They want to be rabbis. They just started keeping Shabbat a few months ago. They want to be rabbis already. They want to make YouTube videos. And they want to make CDs. They want to. They think it's like fame and fortune. They think I'm like a celebrity of some kind. They don't realize the, the craziness and headaches that comes along with all this stuff. And there's no money whatsoever. So anyone thinks that we're making money out of this, there's no money. Each month is a complete miracle. Complete miracle how we survive. But, Baruch Hashem, Hashem makes miracles. For someone does Kirub, Hashem makes miracles. Not, not complaining whatsoever. But, people think that because you're on YouTube, because you're in Torah anytime, because you're on the internet, you're like, uh, you're like 50 Cent or something like that. You're like a uh, celebrity. It's all complete nonsense. Everyone wants to be a rabbi. They want to make videos. And unfortunately, it's not a matter of speaking skills because, listen, there's a match for everyone. Some people like fast speakers. Some people like slow speakers. Some people like Spanish speakers. Some people like English speakers, French speakers, and so on. There's a match for everyone. But if you don't know what you're saying, why are you talking Bichlad? If the first time in your life learning Pasha Shavuot was this week, you're going to publicize a video to the whole world? Learn it at least once before. <laughs> But what's the difference? It's not what somebody's going to say, wait a minute, but technically if you listen to my story, I also grew really fast. 
Oh, Hashem, I did tshuva only a couple years after starting to learn, I already started to teach. So how do you explain that? First and foremost, I tell all the time, I have a rav. Even though I'm a rabbi and I have students and they call me my rav and there's certain people that treat me like I'm some, um, something much more than what I really am, they don't make a decision without asking me and all that good stuff. In reality, I'm nothing. In reality, everything that people ask me, everything that I know, everything that I do, I go to my rav. And I have a couple. I don't make a decision unless it passes through inspection of someone that truly knows, someone that lives it, someone that knows it, someone that can tell me with no hesitation whatsoever, hey, by the way, you're wrong. Hey, by the way, you have no idea what you're talking about. Hey, by the way, this is this, this is that. Someone that just checks and balances. Someone that checks me at all times. Why? Because if I just start telling you guys my opinion, within a week you're all going to join Wall Street. You're not going to join Torah. So, that's number one. So everything that I do, everything that I say is checked with someone. It has supervision. That's number one. Number two, as you can see, most of the time, anything that I say, I have sources. I'll give you page numbers, I'll give you, uh, you know, books, and so on, specifically to make sure that it eliminates my own opinion as much as possible. And if I say my opinion, it's obvious it's my opinion. Cold calling, I don't think, is being taught in Masechet Brachot. So that's my opinion. You'll know that's my opinion. But, you know, other things that I mentioned, it's in the Torah. So, that's the things that you have to, that uh, we're learning here from Aftalion. You have to be very, very careful because ultimately, if you're not careful, your students will become heretics. And consequently, meaning, what happens at the end? Okay, you made a sin. You weren't clear with your words. You said things that weren't 100% kosher. You wrote something that wasn't 100% understood. That led somebody else to sin. And that led somebody else to teach the sin. And what happens is the ultimate result. Ultimate result is the name of heaven may be desecrated. Meaning there's a chance there's going to be Chilul Hashem. Now, what is in essence Chilul Hashem? We talk about Chilul Hashem as being the worst sin in Judaism. There's three of the worst sins in Judaism. Chilul Hashem is one of them. The other two is Chilul Shabbat. And the other one is wasting seed on purpose. Now, Chilul Hashem is one of them. What does it mean, Chilul Hashem? Anything that's going to cause somebody to view the Torah in a negative way, anything that's going to cause someone to view Hashem in a negative way, anything that's going to cause anyone to view Judaism in the wrong way, because all of them are one of the same, the one part of Hashem. It's Chilul Hashem. Now, what's the significance of Chilul Hashem? So let me explain to you what the Gemara says in Masechet Chagiga, page 16a. And you'll understand the answer to your question earlier today was already answered in this Gemara. The Gemara says, the Mishnah, which preceded the Gemara, says, whoever has no heed 
for the honor of his creator, it would have been better for him had he never come to the world. Translation, since everything that Hashem created in the world, He created for His own glory, as it says in Pirkei Avot, uh, 6.11, someone that lacks concern for sanctifying Hashem's name, for glorifying His name, for doing Kiddush Hashem, on a regular basis, not like once in his life, once, oh yeah, I did a Kiddush Hashem one time, I was on the news because I gave Tzedakah to firefighters, not once, on a regular basis, on an everyday basis, you're trying to do it in some way or another. You may not always succeed, but you're trying every day to concern yourself with sanctifying Hashem's name. Something that you're doing every day, if you have the opportunity, you're already thinking, how could I do Kiddush Hashem? Oh, you know what? I'm going to give this guy a dollar. Why? Because Not because of, I'm going to get a mitzvah for this dollar. Or for the $5 or for the $20. Because somebody may see, oh, look, he's wearing a kippah. This guy must be a Jew. Look, Jews are not all cheap. Look, this guy's generous. He's giving $5, not even to another Jew. So maybe he's not a Jew, this other guy, this homeless guy. Wow, maybe this Judaism is not so bad. That's Kiddush Hashem. You're not doing the $5 mitzvah to the homeless guy because you want the mitzvah of the $5. You're doing it because maybe someone's going to see... And because of that, they're going to like Hashem and Am Yisrael a little bit more. You're not going to not cut off the person on the highway because you're afraid of the sin, of being uh, angry or anything like that. You're going to actually give him the right of way because say, oh, you know what? Look, that guy had a keep on. What a nice Jew. Could have been a Nazi, the guy. But now he likes the Jew. When you actually fulfill the mitzvot, like Antigono said in the previous Mishnah, the one that was misunderstood, when you do it without expecting a reward, when you're doing it just for the sake of the sanctification of Hashem's name, you're fulfilling your purpose. But what is the opposite of that? Exactly what he's saying here. This Gemara is telling you that if you don't concern yourself with Kiddush Hashem on a regular basis, you don't care. I'm living my life. Hashem, he's living his life. He doesn't need me. He has other people to do Kiddush Hashem. Let me just survive this week. I gotta survive making Parnassah. I gotta survive with Shlom Bayit. I gotta survive the conversion. I gotta survive the uh, Bar Mitzvah. I gotta survive the marriage. I gotta survive the contract. I gotta survive my world. Let Hashem take care of his world. If he really wants me to do Kiddush Hashem, give me some more money. I'll do real Kiddush Hashem. Give me this, give me that. Like it's conditions. You give him some conditions to do Kiddush Hashem. Like he works for you. So Gemara is telling you here, if you're not concerned with Kiddush Hashem, it's better for you. Not better for Hashem. Hashem's perfect anyway. Specifically says, better for him that you never came to this world. Then Shmaya is right. Shammai, Shammai is right. The, the, the argument between Shammai, Hillel and Shammai, whether it was good for you to come to the world or not, then if you're not concerned with Kiddush Hashem on a regular basis, bet Shammai is right. It was better for you not to come to the world. Why? Because you're going to be punished for every single minute you lived. 
Why? Because if you're not doing Kiddush Hashem, that means you're missing an opportunity. If you're missing an opportunity, look what happened to the most righteous person, number one prophet in history, Moshe Rabbeinu, missed an opportunity to do Kiddush Hashem once. Not twice, not three times, not five, not ten, not his whole life. His whole life was one big Kiddush Hashem. How do we know? It's in the Torah, five books of Moses, not five books of Yeron. His whole life was one big Kiddush Hashem. Hashem wrote a book in his name. Missed one opportunity to do Kiddush Hashem. One. One time he didn't give the homeless guy five dollars. One time. Hashem says, you're not going to edit this life. And Gemara says, you, little people, including myself, you don't find a way to do Kiddush Hashem on a regular basis. You don't look for it. It's better off you didn't come to this world. Hashem's saying this, not me. If I said it, Hashem would never forgive me. Give me songs. We have to start. We learn in the Shiur Baruch Hashem. I knew Kiddush Hashem was a big mitzvah. It was good. It was great. Biggest you know, mitzvah. Wonderful. Dying Kiddush Hashem. Great. Can't wait to die already. Finally make this mitzvah. No, no. He's telling you here in his Gemara. My friend, you are obligated to do it every day. Every time you're... Now, obviously, you're not going to succeed every day. You have to try. Your life must operate in a way where you are looking for a way to sanctify Hashem's name because that is your purpose. You have to stop thinking, oh, I'm going to do this because Hashem's going to give me a million dollars if I give myself. I'm going to do this because Hashem's going to give me two million dollars if I give tzedakah. I'm going to do this because Hashem's going to give me a lot of panasah because I'm nice to my wife. And everything is revolved around Hashem has to give you something for it. First of all, Hashem doesn't work for you. That's number one. Second of all, Hashem didn't say that everything is going to be benefits in this world. Third of all, even the things that He said you will benefit out of them in this world, He didn't say right away. He didn't give you a time. He said, Give Maaser and you'll become rich. But He didn't say you'll become rich right away. Could be ten years later. Could be five years later. Could be twenty years later. You'll definitely live. It's not going to be the last day of your life, but He promised it. Nonetheless, don't do it for that. Don't do the mitzvot for the reward because if you're going to get the reward here, you're missing out the point. Because even if, let's say, for example, you give Maaseh, oh, okay, I'm going to buy CDs. Every month I'm going to give $1,000 for CDs. Get people to do cube, get this, get that. And Hashem says, oh, wow, look at this guy. He gave money for CDs. He gave Maaseh. He's this. Okay, you know what? Next lotto ticket, he wins. The guy wins $100 million. Wins a hundred million dollars. Great, right? Wonderful. It's a hundred million dollars now. Have a seat. Grab a chair. Don't make that. Just, just, just sit. Just sit, please. We're in the middle of the point. You guys are delivering the gettery like his drugs. That's yeah, it. Yeah, we become a yeah, boyfriend. It. become so late to win the day. So, you know, I forgot my point. Hundred million dollars. Got the lottery. Got the lottery. 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 God bless you guys. You helped me work on my midot. <laughs> Blame it on me. That's all. So now, somebody gets all the reward here. They have no idea how much they missed out in the real world. That's the point. You get a hundred million dollars here. 
you're going to die. $100 million doesn't come with you. Stays here. Where are you going to live? 70 years, 80 years, 100 years, 120 years? Okay. You can spend $100 million. You have fun. You bought a plane, another plane, another plane, another house. You have houses in all different places. Somehow you found a patent to live in all of them at the same time. You have tefillin in all of them. No darin. You have cars in all of them. You found one of these mikubalim to, to allow you to have multiple wives in all of them too. Okay, you die though. You leave it here. Twerkless. If you get a lot of money, means you get reward in this world. Definitely part of it, a big part of it. So now, someone that is concerned so much with this world, concerned so much with the reward in this world, is missing the point. Is missing the point. Because the point is to sanctify Hashem's name. The point is to do Kiddush Hashem. Because the Mishnah here is telling us that if you don't do Kiddush Hashem, you're actually missing the point. You are not only missing the opportunity to make the most important mitzvah in the entire Torah, you're missing your purpose to life. And aside from that, usually when you're not doing Kiddush Hashem, you find yourself, unfortunately, in a situation where you're desecrating Hashem's name. Not only you're not Kiddush Hashem, but desecrating Hashem's name. Now, the rabbis that... see people making mistakes don't always say that it's a mistake and there's a cost to it the Chafetz Chaim once told a story he said that um, a certain rabbi one of the members of his congregation was arrested for tax evasion and before they took him to prison he asked to see the Rav rabbi says yes you asked to see me? He says, yes, Rabbi. I asked to see you because I wanted to let you know that now they're going to send me to Siberia for 15 years. And it's all your fault. And Rabbi says, my fault? Why is it my fault? Says, you knew what I was doing was wrong. You knew I wasn't paying my taxes. You knew I was giving extra tzedakah. You knew I was doing this, but you never told me. Had you told me I need to work on myself. Maybe I wouldn't be going to jail for 15 years. And Chafetz Chaim says, he's 100% right. The Gemara says so. Masechet Shabbat, page 54. It says that, why did Hashem punish the rabbis before He punished the wicked? Because they didn't rebuke the people. Didn't tell them that they're causing Chilul Hashem. Didn't tell them they're driving on Shabbat. Didn't tell them anything. But then the sages are saying, yeah, but that generation was so wicked that even if you would have told them, they wouldn't have listened. So the Shekhinah, Hashem Shekhinah answers, he goes, Hashem knew this. Hashem knew that even if you would have told them, they wouldn't have done tshuva. They're wicked. But the rabbis didn't know. Which means that they were still obligated to tell them the truth. They were still obligated to rebuke them. Another part in the Masechet Chagah, page 14a, it says something I've never heard before until I learned this Gemara. Something very scary that I don't think anybody's ever taught 
in the Tisha B'Av Shurim. You know, we talk about the Chorban of Bet HaMikdash, Tisha B'Av. Rava said, Rava, one of the greatest sages that ever lived, Lo charva Yerushalayim at shepasku imena ba'ale amana. Jerusalem was not destroyed until people of truth had disappeared from it. As it says in, ver- in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, Shotutu b'chutzut Yerushalayim. Walk about in the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in its plazas. If you will find a single man, if there is even one who dispenses justice, who seeks the truth, I will forgive her. Rabbi is telling you here in his Gemara something shocking. He says, if there was one Kiruv Rabbi that actually said the truth during the Chorban of Bet HaMikdash, one Rabbi telling people you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat, or else you go to Gainom forever, you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat, or else you're considered an idol worshiper, you're not allowed to be with a married woman, you're not allowed to be with your wife if she's Nida. You're not allowed to eat non-kosher or anywhere, inside your house or outside your house, even if it's pizza. One rabbi, one, that actually said the truth, I would have forgiven everyone. I wouldn't have destroyed Jerusalem. One Mezakeh Rabin, not one, not one left in Jerusalem, was not left. They said all the ones that were actually doing Kiruv left already. All the ones that were saying the truth, they left. There was no one left. Everyone that was left was Rashaim or people that don't say the truth. So I'd say before Rabbi Mashiach, most of the Rabbi would say... 100%. Same thing is going to happen, unfortunately. Unfortunately, the Gemara Masechet Sotah, page 49, it says that the truth is going to be hated at the end of times, and the ones that most, most of the Rabbis, unfortunately, are uh, not going to be telling the truth. They're going to, you know... Be uh, some of them are even going to be above, yeah. So here he's saying something shocking. I mean, okay, listen. If you, if it was like Abraham Avinu and Hashem talking about, hey, listen, if there's fifty tzaddikim in Zdom, you're going to save the nation. You're going to destroy everyone. No, no, I'll save it. Forty-five tzaddikim, I'll save it. Forty, I'll save it. Thirty, I'll save it. Twenty, I'll save it. Ten, I'll save it. Hashem says. Them in the whole city of Zdom, full of Reshaim, used to kill people just because they asked for tzedakah. Not people that, that, that are laying tefillin, they just don't fulfill the mitzvah of Ocheach Tochiach. We're not talking about people that are, uh, you know, idol worshipping. Talking about people just not fulfilling the mitzvah of rebuking other people. He says if there was one of them, one person that actually fulfilled that mitzvah, teaching the public the truth, I would have destroyed the Bet Mikdash. One. And it today, this is Gemara, right? Page. Hey, read it for yourself. Highlight it. Yeah. I have a question, and then I want to know if I can make a statement. Question. My first question, or the question is, is it, can someone convert 
if they were once anti-Semitic? Yes. As long as they're not anti-Semitic anymore. Right, right, right. So I just wanted to, to give like a really short story about, you know, being a Kiddush Hashem. Okay. Yeah, really short. Go ahead. I used to work for these Israelis uh-huh. um, many years ago, and actually I didn't understand anything about Judaism, but I walked into the interview, um, and I saw all this Hebrew and everything, and I felt like I was in heaven. I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is like a holy place. I could work here. And I was just a secular non-Jew. Right. And um, so they hired me, and I was so excited. But I'm telling you, like, over the two years, my experience was terrible. I was like, this is Judaism. They were, it was just terrible. And I hated Judaism, and I hated Israel, and I hated all things Jewish. And I feel like I probably shouldn't say this, but I just want to be 100% honest. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a... Uh, well, you wouldn't be different than Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, who was the biggest rabbi that ever lived, and 24,000 students were the least of them. The smallest student out of all of his students was able to revive the dead. That was the smallest student, lowest level of student. The highest student, Yonatan Ben Uziel, his kedusha was so high that when he would learn Torah, every bird that would fly over him would burn from the, from the fire of his Torah. Rabbi Akiva was his rabbi. And in Gemara Masechet Chagah also, it says a story of four people went to Shemaim, went to heaven, and saw what happens over there. One died, got too close to the Shekhinah, saw something he wasn't allowed to look at, died. Another one went crazy, Another one became a kofil, became a heretic, saw something that he couldn't understand, became a heretic. His name was forever known as Achel. And the last one was Rabbi Akiva, who became better as a result of it. So Rabbi Akiva was that rabbi. And that very same rabbi, before he did tshuva, he says, I used to not only be anti-Semitic, every time I would see a Jew, I would want to bite him like a donkey. He said, no, no, you mean bite him like a dog. Dog bites. No, 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 bite him like a donkey. Because when a dog bites, he bites the flesh. When a donkey bites, he bites the bone. He crushed, it means he hated Jews so much that he wanted to destroy them. But then he becomes the greatest Jew. And actually, some Sfarim Kedoshim say that he actually got to even a higher level of Kedusha than Moshe Rabbeinu. He got to the 50th level, Moshe Rabbeinu got to 49. You can always do Tishuba. Every day you can do Tishuba. Every second, every hour, on anything. Right. For all, your, for all your sins. For, for everything that you've done wrong, you can clean it up immediately. No matter how big the sin is. Yes. Always. And I just want to clarify that I didn't. I didn't. I didn't hate yeah. Jews for no reason. Like you had all the reason in the world. Yeah, because they were cursing, fighting. Right? No, absolutely. Listen, it's a. Uh, it's 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 not. You're not the only one. You're not the only one. So we can finish another Mishnah in a half hour. I can let you guys go home. Which one do you want? Another half hour. Yeah, game first. Okay. Ilel v'shamai kiblu Ilel. Mishnah 
we see the tradition from them. This is the next pair that we're talking about. Hillel says, be among the disciples of Aaron. They're talking about Aaron Cohen, Loving peace and pursuing peace, loving people and bringing them closer to the Torah. Okay. So, first of all, we have to understand who this Hillel and Shammai is. So now we have Shammai and Aftalion who are giants of giants. But they also have students. And people come to their shoeing. One day, they see that they're, uh, they're in Beknesset on Shabbat morning, and they see that the sunlight is not coming in. See, the sunlight's not coming in. And they notice there's a body. Under all the snow, there's a body. And they're allowed to, now it's Pikuach Nefesh, they're allowed to violate Shabbat, put Shabbat on hold, to take him out, climb the roof, take him out, put him next to the fire, warm him up and revive him. And they find out this person's name is Hillel. They say, what are you doing? You're jeopardizing your life. You On the skylight. And Hillel tells them, listen, I work every day for one puta, for one coin every day. Half of the money I give to my family to live, very modest living, and the other half I pay to come here every day to learn Shiul Torah from you guys. Half my money for Torah, half my money for my house. In those days, they would have to pay to go Shiul Torah. And it wasn't free. No discounts. So, unfortunately, because it snowed on Friday, I couldn't get any work. So I came to learn Torah, the bouncer in the front told me, sorry, no shirt, no shoes, no, no service. No money, no service. Can't get in. He goes, yeah, but I don't have any money. I'll pay you back. He goes, listen, if I let you in, I'm going to have to let everybody else in without a payment. Can't do it. And I couldn't deal with the fact that I couldn't learn Torah, so I climbed the roof so I could hear you through the roof. He goes, yeah, but the snow was pulling on you. He goes, I didn't care. I wanted to learn something to Torah. And he put his life on the line just to listen to Shul Torah. He didn't do the rabbi a favor for coming to Shul Torah. He was putting his life on the line to listen to Shul Torah under the snow, under everything, and almost died because of it. it From that, eventually he became a zaken because he was a gdol adol. Not just a ken b'shanim, but also a ken knowledge, uh, elder in knowledge. So now, Hillel got to a point where he put his life on the line for Torah. Shmaya Naftalion said, this guy puts his life on the line for Torah. He never ever has to pay again. And they took him under their wing and he became their top student. Eventually he became the, Abed, the Nasi. Became the Nasi. And Shmaya, uh, Shammai became the Avbedin, second in command. But the Gemara says that before, in Masachat uh, Chagah, page 16b, uh, says that before Shammai, there was a person by the name of Menachem. Before Bet Shammai, he left Shavruta, was Menachem. But he left. He left the Sanhedrin. He left the Sanhedrin. So the Gemara asks, where did he go? You give away your position in Sanhedrin? Sanhedrin is the top position. Where are you going to leave? Where are you going? Where are you going to play pool? Are you going to play golf? Where are you playing? What are you doing? Go to vacation? Retirement? Where are you going? 
Abaye says, Abaye, one of the greatest sages that ever lived, he's mentioned practically in every Gemara, almost in every page of Gemara. He says, he went to Tarbut Ra. Went off the derech. And Gemara says, no, he didn't go off the derech. He went to work for the king. And he took 80 other sages with him to go work for the king because there was not a lot of gzerot, a lot of things, decrees against Am Yisrael. So he went to work in government to overturn those decrees. Help Am Yisrael. The Gemara says, oh, there's no machloket. They're both saying the same thing. Meaning, the fact that he, Menachem, went to go for work for government to help Am Yisrael instead of learning Torah and being part of the Sanhedrin according to Abaya according to the Torah means it's as if he went off the derech it's as if he went off the derech so don't think it's a good thing to be a politician because you can help Am Yisrael it's much better to be an Avrech making a thousand dollars a month learning Torah the Torah is going to help much more the Torah is going to definitely help much more yes this is Gemara so this is who we're dealing with here. So Hillel is saying this. This is a person that sacrificed his life. He's saying, be like the disciples of Aaron Cohen. How so? Not be like Aaron Cohen because they know it's impossible. You're not going to be Aaron Cohen. Let's be real here. He's saying, be like one of his students. How are his students? A student of a teacher tries to emulate the teacher in every way possible. Teacher studies a lot, student studies a lot. Teacher is particular about time, student's particular about time. Teacher is honorable, student becomes honorable. The teacher is going to portray a certain personality, a certain character, and if it's a real student, the student is going to try to emulate that teacher. This is why it's very, very important for parents to act like human beings. Why? Because if you tell your son, every time they answer the phone and somebody asks for them, tell them I'm not home. Tell them not home. That what you're really doing, you think you're doing your, you know, your, yourself a favor here. In reality, what you're doing, you're teaching your son how to lie. Because he knows you're home. But you're teaching him how to lie. If every time somebody upsets you, you start screaming, yelling, and breaking the house, then you're teaching your son, this is what you do when bad things happen. One time, Rabbi asked a group of his students, young kids, what is more important than Shabbat? What is more important than Shabbat? All the students say nothing is more important than Shabbat, Shabbat is holy, Shabbat is this, Shabbat is that, Shabbat is that, and then there's little Johnny in the back. Yes? Because... Hot food is much more important than Shabbat. Rabbi was wise. He says, why? Because mm-hmm. I know that even though we prepare for Shabbat the whole week and we save and my mom cooks and my mom cleans and we all help and everything else, if my dad has the food and the food is not hot, he breaks the entire table and he goes crazy and Shabbat no longer matters. So hot food is more important than Shabbat. That's a good example. 
You understand? Thank you. I got the check. I got the point. So, parents need to understand your kids. They're like cameras. They're recording all the time. No Bluetooth needed. No batteries. All the time. They're recording everything you do. Everything you do. You act a certain way, they're going to do the same thing. You yell, they're going to yell. You're angry, they're going to get angry. You're cheap, they're going to be cheap. Don't argue in front of the kids ever. Ever. Never. Worst thing you can show a kid is argue in front of them. Because the, the kid has to choose sides. He has to put himself in there. You know, it's disaster for the kid. Never argue in front of the kids. Obviously, arguments are going to happen. I mean, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be in a marriage and so on. But there's a way to have arguments. Definitely never in front of the kids. Kids should only see a un- united parents. If Ima said he's not allowed to go, even if Abba doesn't know why she said he's not allowed to go, automatically he agrees with Ima. Never have parents says yes and the other one says no, because then the kids are going to do this. Yeah, but Abba said yes. What happens? The other one says no, this one said yes, so it creates not only creates tension between the parents, but on top of it, it makes the kid into a little con man. He knows who to ask certain questions. Kid is sm- the kids are not stupid, they're very, very smart. And it's not because they know how to play with iPads at a year old. Because they, they notice everything. Ima's not modest, kids are not gonna be modest. It's a reality. I have I have a student where the uh, daughter watched Shuto that we did or we talked. I'm not really sure when she did it, but she asked her, Ima, Ima, how come you don't wear Kisui Rosh? How come you don't cover your hair? The Ima wanted to bury herself. Little six, seven-year-old girls asking, how come you don't cover your hair? He says, look, the rabbi is saying in a shiur. He's saying in a shiur, you have to cover your hair, Ima. How come you don't cover your hair? Now, a smart Ima, what would she do? Try to figure out a way of how to beat a Yetzirah and start covering her hair. That's a smart Ima. What does this Ima do? Tell her husband not to go to the shiur anymore. What can you do? Women can build, women can destroy. So Awana Kohen is the one that you know, was not only a lover of peace, but he pursued peace. What does it mean, loving peace and pursuing peace? <laughs> yes, there's a lot of people that love for it. Everyone loves peace. No one actually outright likes war. Unless you're like Napoleon or, or Hitler or something, or ISIS. You know, unless you're like some type of dysfunctional person, you like peace. Everyone likes peace. It's really the ultimate purpose of someone's life is just to have peace of mind. Everyone wants a calm life. They want the money to come into their bank without them working, without the clients, you know, reneging on trades and reneging on, on different agreements they have. They want the wife to always say yes. They want the husband to always say yes. They want the kids to always go and get A's in school and get the best wives and the best husbands. And make sure that the same religion and the same, uh, you know, cultures and the same everything. Sometimes you tell somebody, listen, he's, uh, he's not Jewish, but he's Moroccan. Oh, we're Moroccan, we're Moroccan, it's the same thing. Yeah, but he's not Jewish, he's Arab. 
Oh, it's okay, they're Moroccan at least. And people don't understand. Okay, there's a religion is more important than the culture. But what can we do? People don't understand the, 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 the foundation of certain things. Cultural stuff, Ashkenazi, Sephardic, Moroccan, all that stuff is complete nonsense, especially for this generation. This generation is completely disconnected with their heritage. For you to marry the same heritage as you is completely meaningless. People ask me for help with Shiduchim because Baruch Hashem, we have a lot of students and a lot of people come to the Shiduchim. So we meet a lot of people. And once in a while we get lucky and we say, oh, look, this is a Shiduch that matches. He's 25, she's 25. He's 45, she's 45. He wants kids, she wants kids. He's this, he's that. You know, they, they, what they're looking for matches. And I send it to this one guy. A couple times this happened to me. I said, oh, look, perfect match. Oh, do you have one that's Syrian? You can't if she's Syrian, Persian, Moroccan, Ashkenazi. Let her be Ethiopian with a little mix of Yemenite and, 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 and uh, what's going on, and uh, Indian at the same time. What do you care? It's a woman. She wants the same things as you. Do you even know what it means to be Syrian in your generation? Do you even know what it means to be Persian in your generation? Do you know what your forefathers went through? You went through Genom to keep Torah in your generation? You have Torah handed to you on a silver platter. You know what your forefathers went through? You don't know what they went through. You can't connect to your forefathers. So what are you? You're only going to marry a Persian because she's Persian? What about the fact that she's not the right match for you? She's 10 years older than you. She doesn't want kids. She's completely atheist. That doesn't matter as long as she's Persian, as long as she's uh, Syrian. People are full of, you know, mamas, like it's just nonsense. But sometimes this actually comes from the parents. I actually had one situation. The parents broke up a shiduch. They broke up a shiduch because he wasn't the right type of Russian. She was Russian, he was Russian, but it wasn't like, the, I don't know, a certain type of Russian. I'm not really sure what kind. Whatever it was. Wasn't the right type of Russian from the right type of town? No, it's not good for us. It's nonsense. Not only is nonsense because it never mattered, but especially in this generation, because this generation, what do they know? They know iPhones. They know iPads. They barely know how to go to the bathroom by themselves without getting a trophy. You tell them, listen, a, uh, a, uh, uh, you can't marry a woman because she's not your same heritage. You don't even know what your heritage is. A parent is lucky if the kid even keeps Shabbat Bichlal. It's like winning the lotto if your kid's religious. Now you're going to give him a, a tough time because he or she is not marrying the right culture that he's not connected to anyway. It's nonsense. We have to be like Aaron. Not only loving peace like in the picture, the nice picture. Oh yeah, we like Shalom, Avat Yisrael, Avat Yisrael. Okay, would you let your, your daughter marry an Ashkenazi? Would you let your daughter marry a Sephardic? Oh, no, no, no. We love Shalom, but at a distance. We love Shalom, but from there. Let the, let the Ashkenazis be with the Ashkenazis, and the Sephardics are the Sephardics, and they have their kila and they have their kila. That's not loving peace. What's loving peace? Alan tells us, but loving peace is pursuing peace. Meaning you have to look for it. Chase it. Because it's not going to come naturally. Naturally, we all have a Yetzirah. Naturally, we all have ego. Naturally, we all think that we're better than everybody else. Naturally, you think you're smarter than everybody else. I think I'm smarter than everybody else. You're better looking than everybody else. You're smarter than everybody else. You're the, everybody thinks they're better. That's a natural inclination. No one wakes up in the morning, even the ones that are depressed, 
and think I'm the worst in everything. People that are depressed usually are depressed because they feel like they're not getting credit for all the things they're good at. But here he's telling you, if you're going to pursue peace, you have to realize, number one, it's not going to come natural. That's why you have to pursue it. You have to be rodif. You have to make it happen. You want Shalom Bayit? You have to work at Shalom Bayit. You can't ignore your wife 360 days a year and only realize she exists in Rosh Hashanah. And tell her, I'm going to Uman. Do you mind? You can't, you know, you can't think that, hey, I'm going to ignore my wife the whole week, but on Shabbat I'm going to say hello and I'm sleep the whole day. You can't be out with your friends the whole month and then only say hi to your husband as soon as you want a, uh, you know, as soon as you want something new from the store. Some money. You can't treat people like this. You want shlom bayit, you have to work at it. You have to be nice to each other. You have to find a way to please each other. In essence, the whole point of marriage, the whole point of a relationship, any relationship, whether it's a friendship or it's a marriage, is for you to bring the best out of each other. Meaning, you are better version of yourself as a result of this relationship. By yourself, you're one. But as a result of this relationship, you're more than one. But if you become negative one as a result of this relationship, there's a problem with the relationship. If every time you're next to your wife, you're an angry person, there's a problem with the relationship. Every, every time you're next to your husband, you want to vomit, there's a problem with the relationship. If every time you're next to your boss, you want to stab somebody, you should leave that job. The point of a relationship is for you to become better. If you're not seeing yourself becoming better as a result of the relationship, this, this is a foundational problem, this is a systemic problem. This is no different than all major problems that eventually collapse. Like People ask me, oh, why do you think uh, the 2008 collapse happened and it's going to happen again in the stock market, financials and everything? It's a very, very simple answer because everything was based on an illusion. Part of the illusion is called fractionalization, which is banking. Banks are allowed to loan 50, 100, 200 times or even more than what they actually have. So let's say, for example, I want to lend you money. I want to lend you money. You want a million dollars. I'm going to give you a million dollars because I have a million dollars. I have a million dollars. You want a million dollars. I'm going to give you my million dollars. I'm going to charge you interest. I'm not allowed because you're a Jew and I actually don't have a million dollars. But in a world we were both not Jewish and I had a million dollars, I would give you a million dollars and charge you interest on it. Right? Okay. But if I was a bank, FDIC insured, not only would I be able to lend you a million dollars, I'd be able to lend everybody here. Where did we get the money? Government. That's the license. The license to steal. So that's number one. So you have all the loans are based on money that no one actually has. Two, no one's actually monitoring the currency. No one has been monitoring the currency. The U.S. dollar has stopped being monitored for over 15 years. There used to be something called money supply. Where we knew how much money we actually had in print. In the old days, it used to be backed by gold. But that already stopped over 30 years ago. But then after that, they said, no, we're going to have some public number that's going to be posted on the government website. It's going to show you how much money is actually printed. So at least we know we can track how much money is out there, how many bills are out there. The real number is not published. 
No one knows. Meaning that if Obama wants to, you know, paste, copy and paste an extra two, three, four, five billion dollars to his account before he leaves office, he can. No one would know. Who's going to say no? You? Who's going to say no? What do you think? Hillary Clinton has a hundred billion dollar foundation because people actually worked for this hundred billion dollars. Printed it. They're stealing to print with you, like if you could print yeah. money, you're not stealing from anyone. You're stealing from a system, sure it's stealing. But the system is corrupt. Gonev Miganao is not lopatul. You're not allowed to steal from a thief just because you're a thief doesn't mean you're allowed to thief. You're allowed to be a thief. But nonetheless, so you have a foundation, systemic problem now we don't have you know, any, any knowledge of how much money is being printed. We don't have any knowledge of what's backing it. We don't have any knowledge of how, who's actually been lending the money if they have the money. And last but not least, what we're lending on, we don't really know if it's worth as much as what we say it is. Meaning it's all based on some estimate of what the collateral is worth, which in reality is based on perception of the future, which could be flawed. Because we're always assuming that the future is better than the past. All future estimates are based on better numbers than today. Because there's something called inflation, which means that the value of money decreases and, you know, and so on. Prices go up. Prices go up. But that's not always the case. There's also deflation. There's depressions. There's life. So, the system in general, I'm not trying to give you guys any, uh, a financial uh, lecture here, but the system in general is flawed, which is the reason why almost every 10 years, every 7 to 10 years, you'll see a financial collapse. Look at history. You'll see a financial collapse. Some bigger than others, but we've had a bull market for, I don't know, since 2008. I already thought that the market was going to collapse a few years ago. I was wrong, but I wouldn't be surprised if it collapses soon. Not because I'm in the market. I don't even watch the market. I haven't watched the market in two years. I don't watch news, market, or anything. But it's just reality. This is just how the world works. When you see the average guy that used to paint walls all of a sudden is a millionaire developer, there's something wrong with the system. When the taxi driver is leaving his taxi and all of a sudden he's also a developer or he's a stock trader and everybody is doing this one thing and the average guy became rich and it's easy to become rich is a problem. There's a problem with the system and eventually it collapses. So in order for us to not have a system that's based on straw, in order for us to not have a marriage that's based on a foundation of just matches, but rather on a foundation that's of steel and rock and things that are really, really fundamental, really good. We have to work at them. We have to work and we have to chase it. But ultimately, you have Now in order for you to do all this, in order for you to love peace, pursue peace, you have to love people. So now the first three parts, practically every single rabbi can say that they, they qualify. They want peace. They give lectures. They want peace. They don't want to tell people, Mechalel Shabbat Mot Yumat. They don't want to tell people all the things about Geyenom, of what actually happens there. They don't want to tell people that. Why? Because if I tell them that, they're going to create war. It's the opposite of peace. Just, ah, I'm the student of Aaron. I want peace. And I'm chasing peace by only mentioning the nice things in the Torah. Right or no? Chasing peace. 
and, be, and I'm doing it because I love people. But here's the problem. You're missing the last part of the Torah. The last part of this Mishnah says bringing them close to Torah. It doesn't say bringing them close to part of the Torah. It doesn't say bringing them part of, you know, to close to just the first five, you know, two books of, of, uh, of Moshe Rabbeinu. It doesn't say just bringing them close to the synagogue to give tzedakah but don't keep Shabbat. It doesn't say that. It says bringing them close to Torah, meanings to the whole thing, to the whole picture, to everything, to the full truth. Why? Because without yirah, without fear, you'll never stop sinning. Without having a foundation based on fear, you're never going to stop sinning, you're never going to stop going against Hashem, you're never going to truly connect to Him, you're going to connect to a false God that you're going to treat like a Santa Claus that owes you something, because you were a good kid all year, based on a definition that you created of what good really is. And you're going to put yourself in a scenario where you have no chance of being the student of Aaron. So that rabbi that says that he's the student of Aaron because he loves people and he's pursuing peace and that's why he's not telling him the full picture. In reality, he only loves himself because he's not fulfilling the Mishnah. He's fulfilling only three parts of it, the three convenient parts that anyone can say. But the part of, the part of bringing them close to Torah, that's the part that's the hardest thing. And bringing people close to Torah is not easy. There's different strategies. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, that uh, telling, giving people on the head every time is the only strategy. There's many strategies. There's an amazing story from Rav Grossman. Rav Grossman is a very, very interesting rabbi. He's one of the few, if probably the only one that could do this in this generation, what I'm about to tell you. Um, he's a unique personality. He's a pure person. I can't do what he does. And I don't think anybody else can. But he's of the generation, Baruch Hashem, that's still around, that can do it. I mean, this is the type of rabbi that's so pure that he can go into a nightclub, pull all the Jews out, and bring them all to yeshiva. Without sinning, nothing. Old man, beard, everything. He goes into the club, finds the Jews, brings them all to yeshiva. When they go to yeshiva, they do tshuva. Today, a rabbi goes to a club, he doesn't leave, becomes kofel. It's a reality. But Rav Grossman used to do this. So Rav Grossman is a very, loves Amisai, but he says the truth. He loves Amisai, he has a love for Amisai that's unbelievable. Love of Hashem that's unbelievable. So he says this funny story recently. He says, listen, I never, I never uh, um, go on first class. I never go on first class, it's not nice. You know, I raise money for organizations. People are going to say, look at this. Guy is raising money for organizations and he's on first class wasting the public's money. So I never go on first class because one, one time, because I fly a lot, El Al told me, listen, you have all these miles, you have all this, you have all that, free, first class upgrade for free. I said, you know what, I don't really feel good, probably better for me to sit by myself and not get anybody else sick. I'll sit in first class, fine, okay, no, so I don't have to pay for it at least and I'm not wasting the public's money. Say, so when I sit in the first class, I said, in the first class, only three people. It was me, and there was two empty seats, and there was this one guy that was 300 pounds, and his wife. 
And he says, I never really do this, but for some reason, after the plane took off, I got the inclination to talk to this guy. And I came up to him. I said, I, I'm Rav Grossman. I raise money for, uh, you know, for this organization that uh, is trying to find homes for these abused children, for these abused girls. Girls come from broken homes and they're abused and Hashem and Hashem, all types of things happen to them. And I'm trying to raise money for them. Would you like to see a movie about it? And the guy says, yes. So I give him my laptop and he takes the headphones and he puts one in his ear and one in his wife's ear and I go sit down. And after about 10 minutes, he finishes. So I come up to him and to see how he liked the movie. And as I lean over to him, Instead of leaning and you know putting my hand on his shoulder by accident, I press the button on his chair that makes the chair into a bed. And because he's so heavy, he instantly goes and becomes like a bed. So I make this guy lay down right away. And I get so embarrassed that I made this heavy guy, this big guy lay down, that I don't know what to do myself, so I ended up giving him a kiss on his forehead. And I ran away. He's such a cute old man. He says this story. It's the funniest thing in the world. And then I see the guy comes up after he, you know, gets up and he says to me, you're never going to believe it. And my wife is uh, my witness to this. I've been uh, trying to donate a lot of money to different organizations in Israel. And... For the last few times that I've gone, I've seen different companies, and I don't like anything. I haven't found something that I like. And I said to my wife, unless Hashem sends me some organization that's helping young girls that are abused, from a person that's holy, that is going to give me a kiss on my forehead, I don't think I'm ever going to find anything. And as soon as I finish saying it, this is what happened. So if you love Am Yisrael to that extent, like Rav Gosman, Chazak Rabbi, huh? Is he the disco rabbi? I think so. I think so. If you, if you, if you're him, Chazak you could be that. Most of us not. All the girls start to cry in the lecture. Can can no? He's amazing. He's amazing. Any questions? Anything? Baruch Adonai Amen. Amen.